ourselves so that we save time. Let us look at rule 142, especially 1425, 1426, and 1427. Let's look at those rules so that we don't have to waste time. We work according to our rules. The question, the first question today is question number one, I mean, 574, 574, asked to the Minister of Trade, Industry and Competition by Ong Inkosi Tebekulu, the Honorable, the Minister. Thank you very much, uh, uh, House Chair. And uh, the question relates uh, to uh, anti-dumping duty on tyres. Uh, honourable members, uh, anti-dumping duty on any product is normally made by an application from a firm. In this particular instance, four firms put in an application asking for an anti-dumping duty against tyres from one country, in this case, China. Now, these firms employ about 6,500 workers. 1,500 uh, of those jobs are in KwaZulu-Natal, 2,900 in Northwest, and 2,200 in the Eastern Cape. Anti-dumping duties are typically set uh, within the framework of the World Trade Organization, and there are certain legal tests that would need to be complied with. The first test, you've got to show injury, material injury. The second test is you've got to be able to show that that injury is as a result of the dumping. And dumping is defined. Dumping is when a country or a firm sells a product in another market below the normal price of that product. So uh, so that's really the background to this. Honorable uh, member, Honorable Kabekulo uh, asked the question whether I found merit in imposing the levy at this juncture. And I'd like to explain that there's a two-stage process by which anti-dumping duties are put in place on any product. First, after the application has been received, ITAC, that's the International Trade Administration Commission, does an investigation. They publish a call for a request for information and comment, and anyone can then comment on that. During the period of that investigation, if they believe, if they have grounds to say that the injury is real, the injury is substantial, and it can even prejudice that firm, they can impose a provisional anti-dumping duty. There's no ministerial decision in that. It's an immediate decision that ITAC takes as an administrative body, and it's implemented immediately. But that is only for a limited period, for a six-month period. During that period, ITAC must then complete its investigation. Once they've completed the investigation, they make a recommendation. That recommendation comes to the ministry, and uh, we then apply ourselves. I have to apply myself to the facts before me, to the law, to the recommendation of ITAC, and then make a decision. So in this case... The first phase is where we are. ITAC has made uh, a decision for an interim duty or interim anti-dumping duty. That is in place. As soon as the investigation is completed, they will send the file to me uh, with a recommendation. That recommendation could be to continue with that duty, 
to increase their duty, to decrease their duty, or indeed they could make a recommendation to me not to impose a duty. That's the point at which I then apply my mind on the matter. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Honorable House Chair. I will take the question. Thank you, Ma. Thank you, uh, Honorable Minister. Um, whether the, your, the department has had any communication with the Minister of Transport and Agriculture on how the levy will affect South African consumers following reports that transportation costs will increase and truck reliance industries will be affected. If not, why not? If so, please provide um, details. Thank you, Chair. Thank you. The Honorable the Minister. Thank you very much for the follow-up question. So I've had no communication with any of the ministers because at this stage I have not yet been required to apply my mind to the matter. Typically with an application like this, there is a request by ITAC for any interested party to make representations. That is ordinarily where the information is provided. ITAC then weighs all of that up. It will get comments from a range of different institutions in the private sector, in the public sector. It weighs all of that up and it makes a recommendation. So we haven't got to the point where I need to apply myself to a recommendation from ITAC. I thank you. Thank you. Uh, the next follow-up question will be asked by Honorable Malimaja. No, thank you. House Chair, how does the action measured by ITEC fit in with government's overall vision of growth of the auto sector? Minister, thank you. Thank you. So, uh, thank you very much, uh, uh, Honorable Malimecha. Tires are part of an overall ecosystem in the auto industry. The South African auto industry is quite significant by African standards. We're the biggest car maker in the continent. Uh, We produce ordinarily about 600,000 cars uh, per year. And here's the reality. Whilst Africa, the continent, accounts for 17% of the world's population, we produce as a continent fewer than 1% of global cars, less than 1% of global steel output. And this is the challenge that we're grappling with, how to industrialize more of our own continent and our own country, indeed. So where we focus on in the car-making industry is not just the big assembly plants, your Toyotas and BMWs and Mercedes-Benz, but it's trying to get more component manufacturing because that's really where the jobs are. There's at least a two-to-one ratio, probably a bit higher, for each uh, one job in the assembly more than two jobs are created in component manufacturing. Tires are clearly a critical part of it. Government has put forward a proposal to the industry. They've accepted it to deepen the level of localization of components that go into every car. That it's not only the assembly of the car, but also, critically, each of the components. Very recently, we launched in KwaZulu-Natal a major uh, 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 opening of a factory Uh, that employs 4,000 people in the electric harness industry. And that shows the kind of potential and opportunity there is for South Africa 
to really drive jobs and development through this program. Thank you. Thank you. Maruti Mishwe. Maruti Mishwe. If your name comes again on the monitor, you will be thrown out. Uh, proceed, Honorable Swart. May I ask you just to ask, allow Mr. Kwankwa to ask his question and then come back to Reverend Meshwe? Thank you. Okay. I'll just check him with connection. Thank you. Thank you. Honorable House Chair, thank you very much. Uh, Honorable Minister, when one follows this debate in the media, uh, one of the things one gathers is that uh, industry experts believe that in, although the imposition of this duty is intended to protect local manufacturers, but there seems to be a case where most local manufacturers import about 80% of the more than 3,000 tires uh, that they sell to the South African market. In that case, how effective is that duty going to be in light of the fact that they themselves, even local manufacturers, import most of the tires they sell to the South African market instead of producing them locally? Thank you. Thank you. The Honorable the Minister. Thank you very much, Honorable Kwankwa. It's um, quite an interesting uh, program that we've developed with the auto industry, which covers both car making as well as component making. We don't try to produce everything in South Africa. So if you take tires as an example, honorable member, there's a, a wide variety of tires, each with their own specification based on quality, based on size of vehicle, the weight bearing, the kind of roads it would be on. So we've tried to build competitive industries where we're able to get long production lines and bring down the unit costs. That means because consumers need a wide variety of, uh, of products, cars or tires or so on, that we will always be importing some of the tires that we need and we will then be producing some of the tires that we, uh, we, we need. And some of the additional tires we would be exporting. So in the auto sector as a well, whole, it's not peculiar just to tires. Manufacturers would make one model or one type or a few models. They would then produce that on scale. They'll sell a lot of that in the domestic market. They'll export quite a bit of that. In one case, a big uh, luxury car maker probably exports about 80% of the vehicles that it assembles here in South Africa. And that they earn a duty credit that enable them to import free of duty tires. So in that way, the system is designed to make us go for long production runs, bring the cost down, and export a significant part of our products. The auto industry today is a very major generator of foreign exchange that South Africa earns because of that system. I hope that uh, helps to clarify and give context. Thank you very much. Thank you. You can switch off your mic, Honorable Kwankwa. Uh, is Muruti back? You may proceed and ask the question on his behalf. Thank you, House Chair. House Chair, and thank you, Honorable Minister. Honorable Minister, one of the concerns obviously relates to safety and the tire specifications. 
when one looks at imported tyres and local tyres, given the earlier debate that we had about road safety and the higher number of deaths on our roads. To what degree are those specifications uh, in order? Honourable Minister Sisulu, Honourable Minister Sisulu, please check that you, your mic is not on. Thank you. Yes, Minister, to what degree can one ensure that the specifications are adhered to when it comes to both the imported tyres and local tyres, particularly when it comes to lower-priced tyres? Thank you so much. Thank you very much, uh, Honourable Swart, for that question. In fact, that's that's an extremely uh, uh, important matter that you've raised attention to. The standards that apply in the domestic market in South Africa on tyre supply, whether those tyres are uh, locally made or whether they are imported. Of course, the difficulty is when you have large numbers of transactions where people import tyres is to ensure that the specifications are enforced for each importer, for each batch of tyres that come in. And therein sometimes lies a challenge that we need to be alert to. In addition to that, there's a difference very often between new tyres retreaded tyres and second-hand tyres. Of course, in, in our case, the trading arrangement permits the importation of new tyres and retreaded tyres. The industry has raised with us that they have great concern about the safety of retreaded tyres, particularly imported retreaded tyres. So it is a matter that is under discussion between government and the sector to address. But really, you've, pay, you, you've drawn attention to an area that we will have to look at because complementing the other measures on road safety must be ensuring that the specifications are appropriate and that they are indeed adhered to. Thank you. Thank you. We now proceed, honorable members, to question 562. Asked to the Minister of Small Business Development by the Honorable Thomelang. The, I'm informed that the Deputy Minister will respond to the questions on the virtual platform. The Honorable, the Deputy Minister. Thank you very much, uh, House Chairperson. And indeed, uh, in my response, the department has and continues to work with the Department of Trade, Industry and Competition and the Competition Commission to address the concentration of the economy and efforts to deconcentrate the economy. This it does through some of the following uh, interventions. Participating and contributing to Competition Commission market inquiries ensuring that barriers to entry into the markets for SMMEs and cooperatives are significantly reduced. Recommending special uh, accommodation for SMMEs and cooperatives. Applying to the Competition Commission for appropriate exemption for SMMEs and cooperatives 
from certain provisions of the Competition Act, implementing SMME-related recommendations of the Competition Commission market, inquiries by providing non-financial and financial support to SMMEs and cooperatives, to access and participate in markets that the Competition Commission has issued market deconcentration rulings and other related recommendations. The Spada Shop Support Program implements recommendations for direct DSPD implementation, while the Auto Body Repairs and Mechanics Support Program does the same for the guidelines for competition in the Automotive Aftermath Report. It is also a fact that the heart of the department's programming is aimed at uh, squarely removing barriers, both historical as well as current, which are an expression of the slow pace of transformation of the ownership structure of the economy. Briefly, this is illustrated by some of the of, of our core programs listed below. Business registration, license and permit issue have been identified as fundamental barrier and gatekeeper to allowing our people to participate in the mainstream economy. Hence, the department is reviewing the Business Act number 71 of 1991 with the intention of amending the legislation to provide for norms and standards, a common business licensing framework, and better protection for informal traders. Access to finance for SMMEs from historically disadvantaged backgrounds and areas, largely determined along racial lines, are another factor that presents a massive barrier to entry for our people. To address the market gap of 380 billion rands between the needs of historically disadvantaged SMMEs and the current rate of finance provided, the department has worked in collaboration to develop SMMEs funding policy that will meet the needs and aspirations of our people. <coughs> she trades... Deputy Minister? Yes. Unfortunately, your time is up and it went over. Uh, before I proceed, may I please ask ICT to come and assist? The clock just stopped. Or oh, can they do it from somewhere? Then you have to use your. Notice. Thank you. Sorry for that, honorable members. These things happen. Uh, maybe it was affected by the load shading outside. I'm not sure why. It just, everything went off here. Uh, we proceed now and ask the Honorable Tomelang.
with the supplementary question? Uh, thank you, House Chair. House Chair, uh, the Deputy Minister, Department develop a program and a plan to reduce barriers of entry and Honorable Chamelang. Honorable Chamelang. Honorable Chamelang. Please allow me. Honorable Chamelang. Please allow me. Honorable Chamelang. Honorable Chamelang. Thank you. Uh, we couldn't hear your question. I think it's your network. Please allow me to give your question to the Honorable Member Fires in the House. Honorable Jacobs. Thank you, Chair. Um, will the Department develop a program and barriers of entry and red tape to ensure that the development of small businesses House Chair. townships uh, which okay, just wait, Mam Famelang Trohela. Refilling Tate Jacobs, your network is very bad. We can't hear you. Tate uh, Jacobs, please start from the beginning so that the minister is able to, to respond. Uh, your network is bad. I'm sorry. Proceed, Honorable Jacobs. Thank you, Chair. Um, DM, will the department develop? plans and programs to reduce barriers to entry and red tape reduction and for small business, especially for our township developed uh, businesses um, and afford markets and also local employment. Thank you, Chair. Thank you very much. Members on the platform, please switch off your mics. I know it's a problem of people who come late, they try to lock and they don't check if their mics are on or off. Check them now as we proceed. Honorable Deputy Minister. Thanks, Chair. As it is evident from the information given above, the department's programs targets SMEs, cooperatives, and the informal sector. This is supplemented by the department's red tape reduction awareness program that fosters red tape awareness amongst municipalities with respect to the following good practices. The importance of improving administrative system like license and permit issues, the importance of issuing timers, building plans, approval and construction permits, the importance of expenditure, management, 30-day payment and targeted uh, procurement in supply chain and financial management functions at local municipalities. The importance of managing and timelessly addressing customer uh, complaints. The importance of regular capacity building and upgrading skills of municipal officials. This, the important management resources constraints and addressing high levels of corruption and agency in municipalities. Thank you, Chair. Thank you. The next follow-up will be asked by the Honorable De Villiers. Deputy Minister, one of the biggest barriers to entry for small business is the current racially motivated BEE rules. 
that only serve to create tender paneers that win tenders based on these BE racial rules. These tender paneers typically are family members, cadres, or connections of state officials and charge massively overinflated prices, can rarely do the actual work, and then either fail in delivering on these tenders or just subcontract the actual work to small businesses that can do the work but cannot comply with the current BE rules. Will the minister consider supporting the DA's social impact private bill that proposes to scrap all BE requirements by repealing the broad-based Black Economic Empowerment Act and instead implement the internationally accepted sustainable development goals as framework for the implementation of procurement policy so small businesses can grow, create jobs and stimulate the economy, resulting in better service delivery for residents and responsible use of taxpayer money? The Honourable, the Deputy Minister. Thank you, Chair. Access to finance for SMMEs from historically disadvantaged backgrounds and areas, largely determined along racial lines, are another factor that presents a massive barrier to entry for our people. To address this, the market gap uh, between the needs of historically disadvantaged SMEs and the current rate of finance provided. The department has worked in collaboration to develop SMEs funding policy that will meet the needs and aspirations of our people. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, The next, yes, Honorable uh, McPherson. Chair, the member put a specific question to the Deputy Minister. In response, he just read the rest of his speech. Honourable uh, Member, so how I, would I know? Well, I, you could see it on the No, on the how would I know so whether he's reading or not? Question, will he support scrapping BE? And then he just read the rest of his speech. That's not the and question it, session. They taken. He is listening. I think they will proceed in the committee room to to answer each other. Uh, Honourable members, the question by Honourable uh, Hendricks of Aljama will be read by Honourable Jafta of the AIC. Honourable Jafta. Thank you, Honourable Chair. Deputy Minister, the informal economy plays a huge role as a means of survival for millions of South Africans without access to formal employment. Their desperate need to put food on the table, resulting into finding themselves in vulnerable situations, and their plight is a dark reminder that the government cannot afford to ignore the need for formal support of the informal sector. The question then, Deputy Minister, becomes, what can the minister do to replace the permits with registration certificates for roadside informal traders, which will prevent their unnecessary arrest and harassment by the Metro Police? Thank you. Thank you. The Honourable the Deputy Minister. Thank you very much, Chair. Uh, as I indicated earlier, 
on the importance of improving administrative systems like license and permit issues. Uh, it, it, it becomes critical that uh, when we, we do that, uh, we are able to see uh, those who really need the requirements or the, the, who really need assistance, and we will be assisting. Thank you very much. Thank you. The last follow-up question to 562 is, will be asked by the Honorable Sheikh Imam. Yeah, thank you, uh, Chairperson, Deputy Minister. The high cost labor costs, the stringent labor conditions, the minimum wage, and including but not limited to the fact that local authorities are not creating a conducive environment, perhaps by providing subsidized business premises for rentals for small businesses. What can your department do to address some of these challenges so that it makes it easier for small business entering the market to be able to gain access to premises subsidized by the municipality and, of course, deal with the entry level as far as the minimum wage is concerned? Thank you. Thank you. The Honorable the Deputy Minister. The ministry has uh, not engaged the small business uh, in the small business sector about bargaining councils direct, but it is participating in engagements at NEDLEC that are led by the Department of Employment and Labor, which seeks to amend certain provisions of the Labor Relations Act. I want to end here, Chair. Thank you. Uh, Honourable members, we now proceed to question 595, asked to the Minister of Public Enterprises by the Honourable Kachalia. The Honourable, the Minister. Thank you, uh, Chairperson. The answer to Honourable Kachalia is that certainly these uh, tariff increases uh, will have an impact on various parties but in, a very, in very different ways, depending on whether residents or businesses are supplied directly by ESCOM or by municipality. Secondly, there are some elasticity studies. That How come this guy is still a minister? Um, Honorable Ntlangwini, you know that you are not allowed to do that. Sorry, and Chair. Not, it just went on. Not, Sorry, Chair. Sorry, Chair. My apology. Proceed, Honorable Minister. Elasticity studies uh, will indicate the extent to which uh, different parties uh, and classes of citizens are able to absorb these costs or not. NERSA, in determining what it allows as tariffs, indicates, and I quote, it is important to note that ESCOM's revenue applications for 2022-2023 financial year coincides with various economic and social issues currently affecting the South African economy. Accordingly, the energy regulator's decision provides a balance between the sustainability of ESCOM on the one hand and the economic well-being of consumers and the economy on, on the other hand. The second factor, uh, Chairperson, that has to be considered is that municipalities levy a surcharge on the amount or the tariff that ESCOM itself levies. 
These surcharges vary from municipality to municipality, remain largely unregulated, uh, although they get the consent of NASA, and could have a serious impact in certain parts of the country, depending on what the municipality decides to balance its own books at, at the end of the day. The third uh, point is that the middle class and the poor both will have some level of impact in the context where inflation is increasing, interest rates are increasing, and therefore the cost of living or the cost of doing business will also uh, be impacted in a, in a negative way. The poor in South Africa have their impact mitigated by the free basic services that are provided, part of which is a subsidy on the side of electricity itself. And then, um, I think we need to be frank that ESCOM itself, although it says that it requires cost recoverable uh, tariffs, needs to do more to uh, undertake uh, savings that will uh, result in the reduction of avoidable costs. So, firstly, it's a question of fuel uh, in the form of coal and diesel. Secondly, in terms of the procurement processes, where business people are overcharging ESCOM in collaboration with ESCOM employees. Thirdly, contractors that are doing poor piece of work, which results in poor maintenance and impacts on load sharing as well, but uh, actually make a lot of money in, in the process itself. So some costs are unavoidable. There are other costs that are avoidable or can be mitigated, and more work needs to be done in this particular regard. And lastly, the, the Electricity Regulating, uh, Regulatory Act also uh, ensures that uh, it provides for the recovery of uh, cost of electricity and a fair return for municipalities and for ESCOM itself. However, we need to ensure that that fair return uh, is one which allows for cost recovery, it allows for further investments, and it allows for a, a margin of profit for the uh, enterprise itself. Thank, Thank you. you. We now ask the Honorable Esak to ask the question on behalf of Honorable Kachalia. Thank you, uh, Chairperson. Honorable Minister, during oral public hearings held by NERSA on uh, the 21st of September, sometime last week. ESCOM indicated that it had consulted Treasury, Department of Public Enterprises, as well as other relevant stakeholders on its 32% tariff application to NASA, which you just alluded to. The question is, can the minister confirm if such a consultation ever took place? What are the relevant details, minister? And if indeed the consultation did take place, then I must ask, does the minister support ESCOM's 32% tariff application for 22-23? Thank you. The Honorable the Minister. I think what's important, Honorable Yusak, is to distinguish between, let's call it the core tariff on the one hand, and the... Uh, amounts that NERSA has not allowed in the past in terms of the regulatory asset account and recovery. 
And what we've had over the last few years is an uh, underprovision, if you like, minus uh, two ESKIM for the basic tariff and uh, the return uh, of monies that are in the regulatory uh, recovery account. And as a consequence, what you have in the 32% is an accumulation of, of all of those factors. 32% is definitely not affordable by the public and by this economy at this particular point in time. And uh, we did this last year where we uh, mediated, if you like, between NERSA and ESCOM and found uh, an amount less than 10% uh, in terms of the increase at that particular point in time. But I think what is also uh, important, Honorable Issa, is that the kind of behavior that we've just seen by a senior uh, councillor in the city of Cape Town, where he has had to step down from his position in the mayoral committee because of an alleged tampering with an electricity meter on his own property. If we, if we can avoid these sorts of things, this will actually help us to ensure that everybody pays their fair share as well. And I'm sure you'd like to say something about that at some stage. Order, honorable members. Order, honorable members. In the rules, we talk of gestures. The gestures that I see are not parliamentary. Please. Uh, let's proceed to Davezita. Wow. Uh, thank you very much, uh, House Chair. Mr. Minister, I had intended to, in fact, the question I wanted to ask you had to do with free uh, electricity allowance, especially for the poor, and maybe to appeal to you and government that there needs to be standardization of this. I mean, uh, uh, developed countries standardize the free electricity allowance for the poor. They don't uh, leave it up to the discretionary authority of each municipality, simply because they want to provide equal protection to the poor. Because what ends up happening is that you end up with an exceptionalism where said municipalities give higher rates and other municipalities give no rates, uh, very low rates to nothing. But Minister, what I want to say is that, I, you know, I've been reliably informed that certain privately owned establishments around the country do not ever experience load shedding, even during load shedding, not because they're backup generators, but simply because they do not. The question is a concern to say if the allegations are true, would the minister be willing to investigate that? If it's true, would he Thank also you. make sure that he holds people to account for it? I can give you a name of one of the Thank establishments. Thank you, in honorable Cape Town. member. Chairperson, the honorable member is welcome to give me as many names as he likes and will certainly investigate that and give you a response. And uh, both Eskom and many municipalities are precisely investigating this area at the moment where because of tampering, because of secret deals between city officials and, and big businesses, including shopping malls, uh, you, you are actually having an underpayment taking place either directly to ESCOM or to municipalities. As far as the free basic services uh, is concerned, as far as I understand it, the Treasury provides for a standard amount. However, from municipal, uh, from municipality to municipality, what varies is the extent to which 
the indigent register is compiled properly so that those who are entitled to the assistance actually get the assistance. But again, uh, I'll, I'll investigate that or ask the Treasury to respond to you about whether there are variations. Thank you. Thank you. Megomani? I'll take the question on behalf of this. Proceed, Honorable uh, Minister, your response to the question so far shows how out of touch you are with the lived realities of our people. So I, I'm going to tell you, Minister, we had 20 days of uninterrupted load shedding, causing businesses to close and people to lose jobs and income. They are paying more for everything and more so for the electricity than they ever had in history. In what way is any form of increase justifiable given the conditions of this country? Thank you very much, Shippers. Thank you. The Honorable the Minister. Well, we all have different experiences of different realities, I suppose, and all have different ways of expressing uh, our concerns about that. We work hard every single day with every single entity to make sure that the impact on the economy and on the people is minimized to the extent possible. Load sharing, we've uh, exhaustively explained, is because of uh, the history of ESCOM, the malfeasance that we've seen in ESCOM, and the slow rate of recovery uh, as well. But let me give you an example, Chairperson, of work done in the last week, where both with the Department of Health and ESCOM and DPE, extraordinary measures were taken to disconnect certain hospitals from the normal municipal grid so that when load shedding happens in a particular area, those hospitals are no longer load shed. So most of the hospitals that they've attended to so far, that has been possible. There's been one or two exceptions where it's not possible to disconnect them from the grid. In, the, in, in regard to paying more for everything, I think if all of us, wherever we find ourselves uh, as public office bearers, whether it's in municipalities or elsewhere, whichever political party we come from, are diligent about how public funds are spent, where they are spent, and how tendering actually occurs, and what share of the tenders we get for our own pockets, uh, we will actually have a lot of cost savings in that regard. Thank you. The last on this question will come from Honorable Kurnevald. Thank you, Honorable Chair. Honorable Minister, public enterprises is usually created to bring tax relief to a country. ESCOM, however, just can't seem to be run economical viable, even with bailouts to the tune of billions of taxpayers' money due to poor management, corruption, and BEE, and as you confirmed in your original answer as well. This new price structure of ESCOM can be seen as the citizens um, of this country that now have to subsidize the ANC failure. Therefore, will the new price structure, as proposed, ensure that there will be no more load shedding and specific, specifically no more bailouts to ESCOM? Thank you, Chair. Thank you. The Honorable the Minister? There will be eventually no more load shedding once we have more megawatts uh, connected to the system. It's not going to happen overnight, but it might also interest the Honorable Member and many others as well that in 1983, under a very different government, 
you had load shedding uh, in South Africa, and that load shedding led to a decision at that time to build several power stations, amongst them Majuba, Matla, and so on, which eventually were completed in the early 1990s. And uh, those are some of the power stations that have some difficulty even today as, as, as well. So not everything is the fault of the ANC. And the bailouts that you're actually speaking about is as a result, as a result of the malfeasance that took place during the state capture period. And as we recover from that, and as we improve the performance of the plants, we will see uh, more megawatts coming onto the system. So to be frank with the South African public, as government has said repeatedly, we could still have load shedding for another nine to 12 months. We want to limit it to uh, stage two load shedding, if at all possible. And the ESCOM management at a power station level needs to do more to ensure that those plants are maintained properly, they run efficiently, and they minimize the discomfort and the cost for uh, citizens and for businesses as well. And for anybody who thinks that there are instantaneous answers, like the uh, honorable member at the back, uh, I'm afraid there isn't one. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, honorable members, we proceed now to question 563, asked to the Minister of Transport by the Honorable Manu. The Honorable, the Minister. Prasa has committed to rebuild and return to service 10 priority corridors this year. Six of these corridors have been returned to service with varying degrees of progress in the rehabilitation of infrastructure. While the new trains have been deployed in some of the corridors, others are operating a limited service due to ongoing works in relation to signaling, overhead electrical traction, station renovations, and track rehabilitation. New trains are operational in Mabupani to Pretoria, Salisville to Pretoria, Cape Town to Samosdown, Cape Town to Retreat via Athlone. In some of the corridors in the Houghton region, stations were severely vandalized and these are still under construction to provide full operational readiness. We are on track with the commitment to return all the 10 priority corridors this year. The following lines are on track to resume services within the planned timelines. Pinarspur to Pretoria Corridor is scheduled to return to service from October. And on Monday, I will be there to oversee the starting of this line. Pretoria to Elansfontein, the Ralla to Johannesburg, Johannesburg to Naledi are all envisaged to return to service in November 2022. Cape Town to Krisani, Captain's Cliff, and Umlazi Devon, Kwamashu Bridge City are still being rehabilitated and are at various station stages of completion. In KwaZulu Natal, Prasa is recovering from the severe floods and are operating two corridors, Kwamashu to Dal Bridge and Tonga to Devon, under diesel traction, and one corridor, East Pingo to Devon, under electric. Uh, traction. In the Western Cape, Prasa 
recently recovered two corridors supporting the Central Line Corridor from Cape Town to Langa via Pinelands and Langa to Benville via Sarepta. This are delays, uh, exper- there are delays experienced on the portion of the corridor from Langa to Nyanga. Other corridors have been prioritized for rehabilitation and recovery in the next financial year. These are Davidton, Port Jamiston, Cape Town Strand, Umkomazi to Deben, Ferenichen to George Koch, Kwesine to Jamiston, Springs to Johannesburg, Ranfontein to Johannesburg, Katorish to Deben, and Crossmore to Deben. Prasa initiated its phase one security deployments to additional corridors on the 1st of June, 2022. This has allowed an additional deployment of 1,650 armed and unarmed guards in 16 corridors in Gauteng, Eastern Cape and KwaZulu-Natal as well. Phase two of the plan commenced on the 1st September 2022. The two phases have been implemented successfully and phase three will commence on the 1st of November 2022. This will bring the total additional deployments to 4,878. Implementation of protective measures for all missions, critical infrastructure through the utilization of security technology as a force multiplier uh, is in place. Thank you very much. Thank you, Minister. The Honorable Manu. Thank you. Thank you, House Chair. Minister, despite what the department has done, which we appreciate, practical experience is that the guards are not necessarily found on the stations and the tracks, as the minister is uh, is saying to us. However, we would like to hear more as to what you are really going to do in the department to make sure that this revitalization is speeded up. The speed within which is done is really appreciated. And the PRASA is unable to spend their budget fully despite all the challenges that we all know. What is the minister and the department going to do to support this entity to ensure that they deliver on budget and on time? Thank you, House Chair. Rule 1427 was floated, but it is up to you, Honorable Minister. The rule means you can only ask one follow-up question. Okay. Um, we are copying the model we are implementing at Sandra in terms of uh, getting capacity, sourcing capacity from DBSA to accelerate the implementation of capital projects at Brasa. Uh, We have sat down with the board uh, to ensure that uh, major capital projects in Sandral in terms of expenditure are expedited. When I arrived as a minister, there was a rule that says that uh, anything above a billion must be approved by the minister. I stopped that because ministers are not involved with uh, allocation and approval of major capital projects, and that is bureaucracy. So I pushed it back to the board. They must decide, and they must decide with the necessary speed, and they must sort out issues that relate to property issues and challenges, 
and the problems of the supply chain. So we are implementing a program to ensure that uh, Brasa does source uh, capacity in terms of human uh, capital, uh, particularly in the supply chain area to ensure we expedite. But over and above that, we're looking at also enlisting the services of uh, entities like DBSA to assist with the acceleration of uh, the implementation of uh, expenditure on capital projects. Thank you very much. Thank you, Minister. We now proceed to the Honorable Hung Singer. Thank you, House Chair. Listening to your response, Minister, your repeated admission for being responsible for exposing our infrastructure to theft and vandalism by allowing security and protection contracts to expire and by acknowledging that you are unable to restore the railway transportation system to what we had in 2019. Could you please explain why you are considering devolving rail services and what advantages might this have for commuters and freight lines in the near future? Thank you. Honorable Minister. In the rail policy, we are addressing the question of the devolution, which has been uh, propagated and led by the DA in the Western Cape. And then in the rail policy, we are saying that uh, for us to implement that, we need uh, a rail strategy. So we are not uh, bogged down on the debate about whether or not we shouldn't. So we are agreed it will happen, but it will be informed by the strategy because some of the municipalities have got to answer the question of whether they have the capacity to sustain that. Um, if a municipality informed by the devolution strategy can demonstrate that we can run trains effectively and all of that, I think we have moved away from just being married to concepts for no reason. Devolution will then kick in. And uh, we, we are working on, on, on that and we have placed that even uh, to... Uh, the country and everybody to understand that uh, we're working on the devolution uh, strategy uh, for, for South Africa. Thank you. Thank you. The Honorable Nolishungu. Thank you, House Chair. You are allowed to Shabangu. Thank you, House Chair, Minister. Chair of the Portfolio Committee in Absentia. The entire south, uh, southern line in the Cape Metro has been vandalized. You have organized criminal gangs demanding protection fee from the contractors that have been appointed to fix some of the uh, railway lines. Have you done a comprehensive assessment to understand what are the underlying causes of this destruction of railway infrastructure. Who stand to benefit and why have you not put sufficient security to protect both the contractors and the infrastructure in the Cape Metro? I thank you. Before you respond, Minister, I must also state that Rule 142 says you must, uh, 7 says you can only ask one supplementary question, but it is your prerogative. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, we, we are working very hard to recover the 
the central line is our Achilles heel in the recovery of the corridors. Uh, correctly said, I think, uh, Honorable Member, uh, there are criminal elements who are de- demanding uh, to be paid uh, through their various com- security companies in the central line, and that has affected our work. We have worked uh, very hard here. We removed people, we are moving people, we secure land, and uh, uh, there are obstacles in relation to that, but uh, we are succeeding. We've got uh, now a compact between government and the communities. They have agreed to move, and then we have secured land. By November, the track of movement of people will begin in the central line. With regard to criminal element, uh, we are working on various methods of intervention uh, that I cannot uh, divulge at the present moment, but we're considering to reinforce our capacity. Obviously, the state cannot allow lawlessness and to be held at random by the criminal element. So it means the state, through its capacity, must clamp down on the anarchy that is going on uh, in the recovery of the center line. So we have, uh, we have uh, deposited that question to the National Security Council to consider extra capacity on the ground, particularly uh, in Cape Town, where gangs have shorted contractors on site and all of that. Syndicates operating in sabotaging the rail lines are multifaceted in terms of their uh, existence. Some are in the transport industry itself because they stand to benefit if the trains are not operational. Then they sabotage. But some are actually contractors. So when they know that uh, this work I'm doing is coming to an end, they cut the lines so that they create the demand in the system. Minister, your time is up. Thank you very much. Uh, we proceed to the Honourable Heron. Thank you, House Chair, and thank you, uh, Minister. Um, I also want to ask um, some questions around the central line, which at one point in South Africa was the busiest line or corridor uh, for commuter rail, um, and certainly regarded as one of the most important, and it has been out of operation for three years, since 2019. One of the causes of delay, as I understand it, was the inability for Prasa and the city of Cape Town to reach a land swap agreement, which would allow the relocation of people occupying the rail reserve. Um, and I'm wondering if the minister can, can update us on whether that land swap um, has been resolved um, and whether the um, occupiers of the rail reserve are in the process of being relocated so that line can become oper- operable again. Thank you. Thank you. The Honourable the Minister. Thank you, Honourable Member, uh, for the question. The, the, the issue of land in terms of uh, Cape Town is the Department of Human Settlement, Human Settlement led by Minister Mamuloko Kubai and the local government in the city of Cape Town. The issues there have been about who must foot the bill. And then uh, we know that uh, the money in terms of human settlement is with the municipalities. Uh, so they are responsible for that. But 
portions of land have been identified and uh, I've gone also to see the land. I've shown the people the land where they are going to move and uh, together with the city, HDA and the provincial government, uh, this land have been secured. Of course, we need to get other parcels of land for the people in Tailicha also to move from the rail tracks. So um, uh, we have a, a, an interministerial sort of committee that in also involve local government in the city of Cape Town uh, that oversee the implementation of moving the people from the rail tracks. Uh, up until now, we are succeeding. Uh, we are running a service in the central line, uh, but it doesn't go over up until Kailicha. We envisage that they will run a full service, 360 degree within the central line come December this year. But there have been delays in terms of land and moving people. We can't move these people because uh, they've sort of used this thing of occupying the tracks successfully and uh, uh, as a bargain with government to get them where they must go before they can actually move. So we negotiate, we use everything, but at the end of the day, it looks like we will succeed uh, once the other portion of land are found and the, uh, they've agreed to move from the, from, from, from the tracks. I've been there personally talking to uh, the people on the ground and engaging in different committees with them and getting them to agree to move. So in that direction, uh, we are succeeding. And I'm hopeful that uh, within a very short space of time, the full central line in Cape Town will be operational. We've got no choice. It has got to be operational. Thank you. Thank you. As we proceed, we go to question 610, asked by the Honorable Heron to the Minister of Public Enterprises. The Honorable, the Minister. Chairperson, uh, South Africa has committed to addressing the issue of climate change uh, in a very uh, dedicated way. And similarly, at COP26, it presented a very ambitious, nationally determined contribution in terms of reduction of carbon emissions. So there are two processes that flow from this commitment. The first is the decommissioning of coal-powered stations over the next 30 years. And the second is to ensure that this process follows a just path, meaning justice and fairness for communities, for workers at power stations and workers at coal mines. The just transition process is uh, one which must ensure that uh, nobody is worse off than before. But secondly, must also ensure that current workers, for example, at power stations, must undergo reskilling and new uh, entrants into the workforce must be trained for what is going to grow uh, in our economy as a percentage of the economy, which is the green economy. Similarly, there will be new industries that will be developing, as my colleague, Minister Patel, will tell us. Those new industries could be green hydrogen, manufacturing of wind turbines, manufacturing of PV uh, panels, and so on. 
and a new workforce with new sets of skills and new sciences uh, need to be introduced into the South African economy. All of this requires that training becomes a centerpiece of what ESCOM does in, and the country does in, as part of the just energy transition. And the partnership with the Cape Peninsula University of Technology and ESCOM is one example of what needs to be done. The second is to revitalize the ESCOM Academy, which has fallen into disuse. And thirdly, a special facility that is being created at the Komati Power Station, which will be decommissioned shortly, which will also train workers and the local community on site, so to speak, at Komati itself. So training and uh, these sorts of examples will become even uh, more common and wider as an important part of the just energy transition. Thank you. Thank you. The Honorable Heron. Uh, thank you, um, House Chair. Thank you, Minister, for the, for the um, detailed reply. Um, obviously, the most pressing um, priority for South Africans right now is a stable um, electricity supply and as soon as possible. Um, and the partnership between Eskimo and, and Cape Peninsula University of Technology um, is, I would say, I imagine, part of the longer-term vision of uh, ensuring that the, the reskilling of workers takes place as um, power stations are decommissioned. Um, and it is um, encouraging to hear that there are other examples of the um, reskilling program, uh, including a dedicated um, academy. So I think the, the, the question that wasn't properly or, or clearly answered was whether ESKIM is now fully engaged in preparing its employees and those involved in the generation of power for the transition to the renew, to, to renewables and other forms of energy or uh, energy generation um, as we start the decommissioning of power plants um, so as not to allow this to be um, a transition that happens without justice. Thank you. Thank you. Honorable Minister. Jefferson, the answer to Honorable Helen is yes. ESKIM is already doing that, and it's happening on a much wider basis as well. And we certainly agree that uh, everything must be done to ensure a stable supply, but even more importantly, uh, energy security in, in South Africa. The CPUT partnership and the academy and the training that is happening and will be happening shortly at Komati, are all parts of two processes. One, uh, the just energy transition process and preparation for that. But the second is also upskilling current operators within power stations uh, to provide them with coaches, to provide them with mentors, but at the operating level to make sure that as rapidly as possible, the previously experienced people and people who worked at the academy are reinstated and that the courses that used to be operated at the academy are reintroduced sooner rather than later in order to upgrade the skills of current operators within the power stations so that we can get more in terms of the uh, available uh, energy uh, from the current plant. Thank you. Thank you. The next follow-up will come from the Honorable Malinga. 
Thank you so much, Honorable House Chair. Minister, good afternoon. Seeing that labor unions had indicated their opposition to the just energy transition and the unbundling of ESCOM as precursors to full job losses, how will the initiative to retrain and reskill workers save and provide better jobs at ESCOM? And what will be the impact of such retraining initiatives on the jobs that exist today in the mining industry? Thank you, House Chair. Thank you. The Honorable Minister. Uh, Honorable Malinga and Chairperson, the unions are both in favor of and some are opposed to uh, what we call the unbundling and the just energy transition. But at a plant level, there is intensive consultation going on, both in terms of the unbundling process, but also in terms of preparations for the just transition process itself. I think it's important for the country to realize that would include the unions and the public at large and the communities around power stations, that we are living in a fast-changing world, although it has its hiccups as a result of the war in Europe, that climate change is a reality. We've seen it in KwaZulu-Natal. We are seeing it in other parts of the country and indeed in other parts of the world, that changes in the energy terrain are going to become uh, increasingly important for South Africa to adapt to. And South Africa is totally committed to the just energy uh, transition process itself. And that involves creating more jobs in new sectors like the green economy, the reskilling that I've just mentioned earlier on, and to ensure that there's uh, a continuation of uh, employment in one form or another for current workers, both at power stations, but also uh, in the mining industry itself. The new uh, green industries that are uh, going to develop and grow, as I indicated earlier on, are going to be an important part of uh, introducing a new growth dynamic in our economy and will change the character of our economy over the next 10 to 15 years. And we've got to prepare for that uh, reality in terms of new jobs, new investments, and a new way of doing business uh, in in South Africa. So the private sector, debt loan, ESCOM, and government must also play its part in this regard. Thank you, Chair. Thank you. We proceed and invite the Honorable Maldwe for the next follow-up question. Chairperson, I'll be taking it on behalf of the Honorable Maldwe. Minister, uh, you speak about what we're going to do sometime in the future. Our crisis is now, Minister, and are you of the view that renewable energy alone can get us out of the energy crisis caused by the incompetency and also which countries did you use as a reference and did it help to grow those economies and if there are none why is ESCOM not scaling up the use of coal and other fossil fuels to address our immediate crisis thank you very much thank you proceed honorable minister we we agree with the honorable uh Paulson on behalf of Honorable Mounte that uh, renewable energy alone is not the solution today, but increasingly 
renewable energy in different forms, including that which still needs to develop as technologies in the future, will become an important component over the next 30 to 50 years of what countries will be using as their energy sources. So over the next 30 years, we'll be going through a journey which is reflected in the integrated resource plan, uh, both today and into the future. And uh, you asked the question, which economies are both growing, but also utilizing increasingly renewable energy. India is growing at just below 10%. Vietnam is growing at just below 8 or 9%. China is growing at between 6 and 7%. And every one of those countries is investing in renewable energy. And if you want some evidence in that regard, you're welcome to ask for it. We'll, we'll give it to you. Why don't we have more investments in coal? Because nobody would fund it. Simple. Thank you. Thank you. The Honorable Butelezi. I miss the initials. I don't know. There are two Buteleses. So, uh, oh, it goes Butelez. <laughs> Thank you, Honorable Chairperson. I think we have a challenge on, on, on network. Thank you, Honorable I will tell you. Ah, my Josie. I'm going to say, Asuguzo, I'm going to say, Asuguzo. It's EM. It's EM, yes. Yes, but you you have a network problem. Can you allow Ubabustole in the house to take the supplementary question? As I have, started... yes, I have. Okay, you can proceed now. I can hear you. Proceed. Mama Josie. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Hi. Gala says, Gala. Pumala, take the question, please, at, yes. in the house. That's what I was suggesting to you. Uh, Honorable Stoll, Job is cut up. Thank you, Honorable Chairperson. Honorable Minister, considering that transitionally to renewable energy is a national aim, why did this department not initially roll out a nationally or blanket program to upskill and capacitate the generating unity of any already suffering as common simultaneously? attend to the severe skills diversity that enterprise is experiencing. Thank you. Thank you. The Honorable the Minister. Honorable Sotoli, I've just outlined a number of measures uh, including partnerships with universities, the revitalization of the ESCOM Academy and uh, programs at Komati itself. And I'm sure there are many tertiary institutions that are also training a new Honorable of... Minister, please don't take it that you are talking to him. He's closer to you. Uh, we want to hear you. Yeah, we both come from KwaZulu-Natal. So. 
Okay. So uh, let me repeat, uh, Chairperson, that I've already indicated that uh, there are partnerships with tertiary institutions, the revitalization of the ESCOM Academy, the training center at Komati, and there are many other institutions that are providing similar training as industry is itself. So as the sector grows, innovatively, this uh, uh, program that you speak of will grow, and it will certainly become an important part of upskilling our younger people, but also older workers in a new set of skills that will enable them to keep their jobs into the future, which is what we all want. Thank you. Thank you. We now on question number 555, asked to the Minister of Public Works by the Honorable Dobongwan. The Honorable, the Minister. Thank you, uh, Honorable Chairperson. Uh, Infrastructure South Africa is responsible for coordination and planning of all the strategic infrastructure projects that were gazetted on the 21st of, 24th of July, 2020. And that is in line with the Infrastructure Act of 2014. I must also state that any uh, um, strategic infrastructure project that we have gazetted in 2020 um, remains under the ownership or sponsorship of the relevant department or implementing agent. It is also important to note that line function departments, state-owned entities, public entities, provincial governments, and municipalities are responsible for the implementation of these projects in terms of the PFMA and the MMFA. Um, I will provide a breakdown as part of the, the answer to the question of where these projects are and which areas and in which province. Where we are currently is that uh, out of the gazetted projects, the total value is about 340 billion. And the status is that these projects are in human settlements, transport, water and sanitation, energy, digital infrastructure, agriculture, and agro-processing. So far, we've got 16 of those projects in project preparation. Uh, 25 of them are in procurement, and nine of them have been completed. And so far, we have created over four, 438,000 uh, jobs. So it is all work in progress, and we are still working with all departments uh, to assist them uh, in project preparation for all future projects. I thank you. Thank you, Honourable Minister. The first supplementary question will be asked by the Honourable Tobongwana. Thank you, Honourable Chair. Thank you, Minister, for responding to that question. My follow-up question is, what are the plans and structures that have been put in place by the department and its entities to ensure the execution of the strategic infrastructure projects? And when will these projects be ready for execution? Thank you. Honourable Minister. 
Thank you, Honorable House Chair. Like I've said, they are all in various stages of implementation. Some of them are in procurement. Some of them are in project preparation. Some of them are um, completed. And we, the, the figures that I've just given to the Honorable Member as an update as of the end of August 2022. I thank you. The second supplementary question will be asked by the Honourable Graham. Thank you, Chair. Uh, Minister Dill, as you said, it was reported in July 2020 that private sector funders had committed 340 billion rand to 62 of those projects that were announced by the President. The first 50 of these were deemed to be shovel-ready. They included an emergency power program and are delivering up to 2,000 megawatts of new generation capacity, as well as 106 billion rand in water and sanitation projects. Dr. Ramachopa, head of, of ESA, stated that despite projects of this nature taking up to 36 months for approvals alone, these would be finalized within 56 days. So in effect, we were promised 62 projects within three months. Two years later, we have rolling blackouts and severely constrained water and sanitation systems. Minister, which of the promised 62 projects was actually completed in those three months? Thank you. Honourable Minister. Can can only be a miracle if you complete an infrastructure project in three months. What we have said, Honourable Chairperson, Honourable Member, is that the total value of all the SIPs together is 343 billion. What we are reporting on today is that uh, out of the 340 billion, so far we've been able to raise funding uh, to the value of 238 billion. So I think it's just a misunderstanding, but the total value of all the SIPs together is uh, 340 billion. I thank you. The next supplementary question is to be asked by the Honourable Suwisa. Thank you, House Chair. Uh, Minister, in May this year, it was reported that almost a quarter of South Africa's 340 billion worth of strategic infrastructure projects have been delayed or put on hold because of load shedding. How much of the projects allocated to ESA have been delayed or abandoned because of load shedding. Honourable Minister. Thank you, Honourable Chairperson. No, not a single project was abandoned because of load shedding. ESA is responsible for the strategic infrastructure projects, 62 of them. And like I've said, that the implementation of these projects is done by the relevant line departments, by the relevant municipalities and provinces. ISA is not implementing. That is why I made that point in my first response. The role of ISA is to coordinate and to assist all three spheres of government, SOEs, whoever needs the help of ISA in planning and coordination. That is what we are doing. Thank you. Thank you. And then the last supplementary question will be asked by the Honourable P.A. van Staden. Right, okay, this was the Honourable Minister. With the establishment of Infrastructure South Africa in November 2019, 
the aim of this entity was to raise an amount of 100 billion US dollars to get international investments for infrastructure projects. Can the minister indicate if, if a set target for this huge amount of investments were successful? What amount were actually received by government from international investors? And can the minister give an indication how these investments will be utilized if received? Thank you, Honorable Chairperson. Honorable Minister. Thank you, Honorable Chairperson. Certainly, I can give the, uh, the Honorable Member a breakdown, which I don't have with me here. But also, there is also the, the Presidential Infrastructure Investment Office that's also responsible for raising investment. As you know, we had two investment conferences already, and I will get the breakdown of what we were able to raise, how many of those projects have we have materialized, but I don't have that information in front of me, but I will provide it to Honorable Van Staden. Thank you. Chair. Thank you, Honorable Minister. Honorable Members, question number 592 has been asked by the Honorable McPherson to the Minister of Trade, Industry and Competition. The Honourable Minister. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much, House uh, Chair. Uh, as uh, Honourable uh, McPherson would know, the determination of tariffs is set out in our legislation, and I referred earlier on the matter of tyres to how the system works. And when ITAC considers a tariff application, it takes a number of factors into account. If you take into account the impact on industry, on workers and jobs, on consumers and prices, and that is brought to the attention of ITAC by public submissions. You have consumer groups, you have uh, importers, you have domestic players, all of them making representations. ITAC then sets out a recommendation that comes to the executive authority, in this case, the ministry. The circumstances that we are in, the impact of the pandemic, the war in Ukraine, all of these have seriously disrupted supply chains, and we've seen a significant spike in prices, particularly of significant foodstuffs. Many South Africans are hard-pressed. And under these circumstances, when an application is made and ITAC makes a recommendation, uh, I take these things carefully into account. And we balance that also against the enormous jobs uh, challenge that we face. 11 million South Africans need jobs, are willing to work, are prepared to work. And we've got to be able to do everything possible to retain those jobs. Tariffs play a role in protecting those jobs. Just in the food sector alone, if you take the food value chain, significantly more than 1 million South Africans are directly employed in agriculture, in food production. In addition to that, um, I should point out the importance of food security. Countries generally take measure, permissible measures in terms of the global rules uh, set by the WTO, as well as the domestic rules, to ensure that countries have a domestic supply of food. We saw countries, a significant number of countries, faced with enormous price rises, untenable situations, because they were completely dependent on imported food production. And when those supply chains are broken, when they are disrupted, it has enormous hardship. Our job is to find a, a proper balance between all of these, to ensure that we have food security and to ensure that we take every reasonable step to protect jobs and to assist consumers. 
Finally, I should point out that there's also a number of food products for which there is no tariff uh, uh, in place. In other words, uh, where the tariff uh, duty would be regarded as zero. Uh, and I'm happy to share some of that details. So if we take all of this into account, what the job of governance entails, which is to balance carefully all of these considerations to make sure that we don't put many, many more jobs at risk and that we have food production in South Africa, we've tried to take that balanced uh, position. I've had applications come through with recommendations from ITAC. I've had to carefully consider those. Uh, in one instance, I've had to postpone the implementation date in order to take into account the challenges that ordinary South Africans face. Thank you. The first follow-up question will be asked by the Honourable McPherson. Thanks, Chair. Minister, in April of this year, the DA called on you to suspend tariffs on poultry as the cost of living crisis started to take hold. Because we know that chicken is the cheapest form of protein for millions of people in this country. On the 21st of May, in this house, seated where you are, I again asked you if you would suspend tariffs on poultry to assist people who were struggling to put food on the table. You responded by saying this would be, and I quote, an extreme move, and your approach, and I quote, was more balanced and more mature. Nine weeks later, you tore up your talking points and did what you said you wouldn't do. You suspended poultry tariffs for 12 months. However, since then, you have instituted tariffs on a range of consumer items from frozen potatoes to tires for taxis. It's clear that South Africans are battling to survive this crisis. Will the minister commit to review all tariffs on food and consumer items with a view to sus possibly suspend those tariffs for 12 months, like he did with poultry this year? And if not, why does he believe consumers should continue to pay more because of his protectionist policies? Thank you. The Honourable Minister. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you, Chairperson. Let me perhaps start with a basic lesson in education. Let's try to educate uh, Honorable McPherson in how the world really works and how our law works. Uh, I, I think uh, in these circumstances, uh, if one of the outcomes of today's meeting is a more educated uh, Honorable McPherson, we'd have achieved something. So let's start with poultry. We put in February 2020 a set of tariffs uh, that applies to poultry. Those tariffs remain in place. They've not been torn up. They've not been removed. They apply to all countries where we have what we call uh, the MFN tariff. It would, of course, not apply where we have a free trade agreement. Separate to that, completely separate to that, there was an application to ITAC to put in place anti-dumping duties. Not the tariffs, anti-dumping duties. Those anti-dumping duty application came to me. It was the first time that I had to consider it. There was an interim duty that ITAC had applied, as I indicated in the case of tires. When I considered uh, the application, based on the merits of it, I felt this was a compelling case, and I approved it. Looking at the timing of implementation and taking account the circumstances that we faced with, uh, I decided 
that we should postpone the implementation of the anti-dumping duties, not the normal tariffs that Honorable McPherson spoke of. So I hope that that lesson in basic trade law uh, would assist Honorable McPherson. Similarly on tires, similarly on tires, I have made no decision on the tire matter as I took some time to the question of Honorable Tebekulu uh, to, to explain. I would like a more, edu- a more informed debate because it is valuable and helpful in Parliament uh, to account for what we do, uh, to have some uh, alternative ideas put here. But let's at least start with the same facts. We don't invent our facts. We can have the liberty of uh, drawing our own opinions, but we can't invent our own facts. Thank you very much. The next follow-up question will will be asked by the Honourable Prince Bernd Namashe. Order, Honourable Members. Thank you very much, uh, Honourable Chair. Um, Honourable Chair. Order, Honourable Members in the House. Continue, Honourable Member. Thomas Sangara once retorted, Honorable Chair, he who feeds you controls you. The effects of COVID-19 and the impact of the conflict between Ukraine and Russia has had a negative impact on the price of goods. And this has shown how important it is for nations to be self-sustainable and not dependent on imports. Now, the question I have uh, to the Honorable Minister, what measures are in place to protect local industries, particularly those in the food production sector, so as to ensure preservation of jobs and ensure the self-sufficiency, as well as protecting the sovereignty of the country? Thank you, Chair. Thank you, the Honourable Minister. Well, thank you very much, uh, Honourable uh, Burns Namashi, for the question. In putting forward a proposal uh, on uh, food security, government as a whole, drawing in the different departments, draw on, number one, trade measures. I've spoken about it. And trade measures can do one of two things. We can increase tariffs that can provide some support. We can decrease tariffs, which can enable prices to to stabilize, and it's getting that balance right. The second part of what we do is to provide industrial funding to to small-scale food producers. Uh, They they achieve, uh, uh, we hope, the kind of competitiveness that can give us the food security we need. The Industrial Development Corporation has those programs the National Empowerment Fund has those programs. The third leg of what, what we do as government is to try to access additional markets. South Africa would never be 100% self-sufficient in every product. These are functions of climate. They're functions of economies of scale. There are many different factors that determine this. But we want to be able to be a significant and serious food producer. So in the Southern African area, for example, 
about my, my team has done a calculation and they tell me it's about 99% of tariff lines have no tariffs in place for trade between fellow African countries. And that would be the 15 other countries in SADC, in the Southern African Development Community. We have a free trade agreement with the European Union, which also covers a significant number of products that are duty-free. So, Honorable uh, Bernstein-Amashe, Honorable Members, it's finding a series of measures which, when taken together, provide South Africa with uh, the security that we remain a significant food supplier. And even in difficult times, even when others may want to close their borders, even when supply chains are disrupted, that there will be food production in South Africa. Thank you very much. The next follow-up question will be asked by the Honorable Chwaku. Thank you, Chair. I'll take it on behalf of uh, Honorable Chwaku. Minister, our question is quite uh, the opposite of what the DA asks, really. Many infant industries in the country have been destroyed because of low import tariffs for cheap products produced elsewhere in the world. The dairy industry, the chicken industry, and the textile industry are typical examples of how lack of protection for our own industries lead to their destruction and loss of jobs. In, last, in light of the immense pressure on our economy at the moment, have you considered increasing the tariffs to protect some of the, our infant, infant industry? If so, what are the rele relevant details? The Honourable Minister. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Honourable uh, Chwaku. I think you point correctly to a big challenge that countries have, and that is around food security. And I would say, uh, in fact, that there's a range of other products like healthcare. In the middle of the pandemic, we, we found that it was difficult to access face masks, hand sanitizer, ventilators, and so on. And South Africa needed to repurpose its own industrial capacity to be able to manufacture that. Now, tariffs play a role. But if we simply increase tariffs to the highest that is possible, we also remove the opportunity uh, and the incentive for companies to innovate, to become more competitive, to offer products to the South African uh, consumer at prices that are reasonable. So I think the point that Honorable McPherson made earlier about the negative impact of tariffs, if taken too far, this point would be right. Uh, on the same uh, uh, side, the, the point that Honorable Tsuaku uh, uh, that you make about the negative impact of reducing tariffs too sharply is absolutely valid. What's the role of government? It's to find that balance between all of these, to look at the facts, to look at the detail, to see the number of jobs that are involved, to see how critical that product is in feeding the nation or providing health to the nation, and then based on the evidence and the law to make those decisions. That's what we do. So we don't favor that we simply become absolutely protectionist on everything. It's that careful balancing act that represents what we do. But it's within a strategy that must drive industrialization and must wean ourselves away and shift Africa's cause, where Africa is an exporter of raw material and an importer of consumer goods. That needs to change. That's a neocolonial legacy. That's what we must break. And that's what our industrial and our trade policies are designed to do. Thank you very much. The last supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable Sheikh Imam. Uh, uh, thank you, Chairperson. Minister, good point. 
During the days of apartheid, we manufactured everything to beat sanctions. Today, we have the entire country, but we're importing almost everything. To such an extent, most of the industries are shutting down. Look at the confectionery industry, how they are affected by the free uh, sugar-free duty on sugar from Eswatini and others. What measures can your department put to ensure that we become more productive and self-sufficient in this country and limit the imports into the country, particularly for goods that we can manufacture and boost economic growth and job creation in South Africa? Thank you. Honourable Minister. Uh, thank you very much uh, for that uh, question, uh, Honourable Sheikh Imam. In addition to the points that uh, uh, came up earlier about the importance of funding to small-scale farmers, I would add the supply of water. The basic infrastructure that you need in an agricultural area is vital to bringing more South Africans, more small-scale farmers into food production and increasing the supply of basic goods. Uh, Honorable Sheikh Imam, you specifically pointed to food, and I think you'll take the point that this applies uh, even more generally. And I think you, you, can, you can take that broad approach that you've outlined and apply it to a number of other different sectors. The confectionery industry is a particularly challenging one. It's challenging for the following reason. We are in a Southern African customs union with four other countries, Eswatini, Lesotho, Namibia, and Botswana. Within that customs union, we don't have tariffs on products that move between these. If you go to a shop in Eswatini, you'll see many of the manufactured products there would have been made in South Africa. And so we've got to trade also with each other as part of the quid pro quo, part of the reciprocity uh, that is a single customs union. At the same time, our challenge is how do you keep thousands of jobs in the sugar industry, uh, both in farming and in confectionery and beverage supply. So what we've done there is there's a, a tariff in place that applies to what we call deep water imports. This would be imports uh, particularly from Brazil, and we provide some protection to local farmers. Uh, the Eswatini sugar helps to moderate, uh, to some extent, the tendency for domestic prices to go up if there's absolutely no competition. We must work to see how we can get more of those small and medium-sized confectionery firms stronger, more competitive, able to expand their business. And one of the things we've done is in the African continental free trade area, we've tried to make sure that we are able to gain access for confectionery producers to markets elsewhere. Honorable Minister, your continent. time is now expired. So I hope that that assists in setting out the overall approach. Thank you very much. Thank you. Honourable Members, question number 577 has been asked by the Honourable Mawatwe to the Honourable Minister of Public Enterprises. The Honourable Minister. Uh, thank you, Chairperson. From an Eskom point of view, firstly, the 7 billion rands is the amount of money spent on purchasing and using extra diesel given the unpredictability of the coal-powered plant. But uh, equally importantly, Eskom is cognizant of the negative impact of load shedding, as I've indicated before, on the country's economy and the inconvenience and hardship it causes to the country. However, load shedding is a last resort to protect the system from a total blackout, as one would call it, which is the total loss of electricity 
in the network, as we've seen in Texas, California, and certain other parts of the world. So load shedding is a system design and the stages of load shedding to ensure that the grid does not collapse entirely. Eskim's generation fleet, as I've indicated, is unreliable and unpredictable because its plants have been run for nearly two decades at exceptionally high utilization factors. This utilization factor, chairperson, should be around 65 to 70%. Currently, it's run at about 90% because of the unpredictability and the lack of midlife refurbishment in many of the plants that has been independently confirmed. There's also been insufficient investment in maintenance and, uh, as I said, midlife refurbishment because of inadequate capacity and uh, years of tariffs that were not reflective of prudent and efficient costs and, of course, the malfeasance that we've seen in the recent past. The delay in completion of Medupi and Kusile and the poor, poor performance at Medupi and Kusile have also been negatively impactful on Eskom's generation capacity. Together with inadequate capacity in the system, the unreliability and unpredictability have led to load shedding, and it means that the risk of load shedding remains if there are more breakdowns than predicted in the base planning scenarios. And as I indicated, the 7 billion rounds were spent on procuring diesel for the open cycle gas turbines or the OCGTs. Without the use of these, the stages of load shedding would have been more severe. Despite Eskom's plans to improve performance, the factors mentioned above mean that a sustained end to load shedding cannot be achieved overnight, as I indicated earlier as well. This requires both an improvement in the reliability and predictability of Eskom's fleet, but above all, as has been said in, in the year 2000, an additional four to 6,000 megawatts is necessary to give it the space to do the necessary maintenance. An improvement in the reliability and predictability of the fleet requires adequate financial resources, some of which, Chairperson, we must be frank, can be uh, reclaimed from uh, the losses, the theft, and the overpricing that currently occurs between Eskom and its various suppliers. To achieve this, Eskom is driving a generation turnaround program that focuses on strategic initiatives. I mentioned training earlier on competency development, technical uh, excellence, and uh, better management of supply. Finally, due to the high level of load shedding experience, the President announced the establishment of the National Energy Crisis Committee, or NECOM, on the 25th of July this year, to oversee the implementation of an integrated action plan to end load shedding and achieve energy security. This committee uh, and its technical arm is hard at work to ensure that we more speedily attend to, on the one hand, the load shedding and better performance of ESCOM, and on the, uh, on the other hand, the addition of additional uh, megawatts into the system through renewables and other sources. Thank you. Thank you, Honourable Minister. The first supplementary question will be asked by the Honourable Mawatwe. Uh, thank you, Chair. I'll take it on behalf of Honourable Mawatwe. Uh, Minister, from your response and what is currently happening, 
without that load shedding is the last resort, as clearly yours is to privatize all state assets. Mr. Jamlandas, your guy, Birayte, has been at ESCOM for almost 30 months. And during this period, we have seen the worst load shedding ever in this country. He has on various occasions uh, referred to ESCOM as a dead horse and made public pronouncements that seems uh, to promote independent power producers and not really concerned to address the challenges that are faced by ESCOM. Uh, Minister, what logical explanation can you provide for continuing to support and protect this seemingly incompetent CEO? And why do you think he's the right person to turn around ESCOM despite his public pronouncements on independent properties? Thank you. The Honourable Minister. Thank you, Chairperson. You know, Chairperson, there, there comes a time when one hopes that members who are supposed to be called honorable uh, operate with some dignity and with some respect to each other. And what one hears constantly from certain people in the House is insult and all sorts of remarks that have no place here. Having said that, there is a continued... Honorable Minister... Why do you want to be recognized, Honorable Member? Okay. The Minister was asked a question. Instead, he wants to come and dictate to us how we must... No, Honorable Member, that's not a point of order. Take your seat. Continue, Honorable Minister. I am responding to the question, Chairperson. There, there is also a repeated narrative put out there, which is a false narrative, narrative. To put it more simply, it's a lie. To put it even more simply, it's misleading to the South African public. And to put it even more simply, it's just political gymnastics at this point in time. There is no intent to privatize anything in ESCOM. There is every intention to ensure that where it is appropriate, the private sector will get involved, such as investing in the generation arm so that we have more megawatts on on the system. We will soon announce, as we've said uh, a few days ago, a new board. That board will review the entire management system and the management of ESCOM. It will also uh, review the current operations of ESCOM and make the necessary recommendations in respect of any, any changes that need to be made. And as I indicated earlier on as well, we require a balance uh, correctly between attending to the coal-powered uh, power stations at this point in time and the challenges that they face, and at the same time, invest in future sources of energy like renewables, which, however denialist we want to be, is the future over the next 20 to 30 years. Thank you. The second supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable Gumere. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Minister, for the answers that we have given. At this stage, it still remains succinct. My story goes, insofar as ESCOM's existing spending aimed at addressing energy challenges amid the oil prices hike due to Russia invasion of Ukraine is concerned, 
Are there any least expensive ways for XCOM to cover operations, fuel, and uh, maintenance costs to match the growing energy demand? What alternative sources of funding does ESCOM have to meet investment required to address the inefficiencies within the current electricity networks? I must say, Minister, that congratulations. Honourable Member, your time has now expired. Thank you very much. The Honourable Minister. Thank you, Chairperson and Honourable Commander. I suppose the less uh, expensive ways, uh, as you say, in relation to fuel and maintenance costs, is to work more closely with, uh, firstly, industry, secondly, the law enforcement agencies, and thirdly, with forensic investigators within ESCOM itself to ensure that ESCOM does not pay beyond market rates for fuel, for the fuel oil, uh, that it uses in the first instance is diesel, second is the fuel oil. And you've heard a number of people talk about the corruption that is taking place as far as fuel oil is concerned, where a truck of 100,000 liters gets into the power station area, doesn't actually offload the oil, collaborates with somebody within itself, leaves and comes back. So you're paying twice for one load of fuel oil. Similarly, on the maintenance side, far greater efficiencies are expected of the current contractors to ESCOM, but there are also uh, mechanisms in place now to explore whether original equipment manufacturers uh, need to be brought on board uh, in order to attend to some of the maintenance, uh, in particular power stations that they were responsible for constructing and thereby uh, reduce the cost of maintenance itself. Alternate sources of funding uh, for ESCOM, partly it will come through uh, investment, as I said earlier on, by various parties as part of the just uh, energy transition in IPPs and other forms uh, of energy generation. Secondly, it will come through grants and uh, uh, concessional funding from international sources as we undertake the energy uh, transition in South Africa. And that would uh, reduce the cost of funding uh, ultimately. But currently, the debate with the international community, in particular the developed countries, is that they are the major polluters over the last 100 years, uh, as far as carbon dioxide is concerned. They need to now pay up for developing countries to undergo the, this particular transition. In investing in the network, that's the next big challenge because there needs to be somewhere between 100 and 150 billion rounds of investment that needs to take place to extend the transmission grid. Thank you. Thank you, Honourable Minister. The next supplementary question will be asked by the Honourable Esak. Thank you, Chairperson. Honourable Minister, uh, with due respect to you, before I get into my follow-up, I just would like to point out to you that... You know, in the DA, we do things and practice things differently. One based on transparency and fairness. The MAKO member you referred to in the city of Cape Town has stepped down and aside and called for an open transparency investigation. Look behind you, Honorable Minister, 
And you will see, as well as our president, who refuses to subject himself to certain questions. Cover-ups are the order, order of the day within the ANC. Yes, in the DA, we do things differently. So to go on to my follow-up question, Honorable Minister, it was recently reported that ESCOM has only hired 18 engineers to date with the help with the, to help with the maintenance program of ESCOM power stations. With ESCOM plants constantly breaking down at an alarming rate, it is obvious that ESCOM needs Honorable more Member, get your question. Your time is expiring. Honorable Chairperson, I'd like to find out why has recruitment levels of experienced engineers at ESCOM remained low despite the elevated breakdown of power plants? And what role has BBE played in slowing down this recruitment process? Thank you, Chair. Before the Honourable Minister, before Honourable Minister reply, I want to remind members in terms of Rule 142. In terms of Rule 142, Sub Rule 7, a supplementary question must may not consist of more than one question. So you can't ask two, three supplementary questions. Please respond to whichever one was asked, Honourable Minister. Uh, thank you, Chairperson. The President, uh, Mr. Isaac, will be in this House tomorrow. I'm sure you'll have your opportunity to raise your issues with him. And that's as transparent as you can get. Secondly, uh, as far as the 18 persons are concerned, Eskom has just launched a what do you call crowdsourcing uh, program. You might read about it, which will ensure that anybody who's interested, and so far there's 150 or so individuals that have volunteered uh, to assist Eskom in one way or another. They will go through a screening process and Eskom will decide who to deploy in, in what capacity. And as far as stepping down is concerned, well, the DA must also explain why there's been this massive exit of black individuals from the DA. Thank you. Honorable members, the last supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable Swart. Thank you, Thank you, Honorable Minister. And arising from your response, the ACDP shares deep concerns about the ongoing load shedding and the devastating impact that it is having on households and businesses and the economy as a whole. We are, however, fully aware that load shedding can be attributed to a multitude of factors ranging from state capture and corruption, internal sabotage, criminal syndicates, poor power station designs and maintenance, poor quality coal and other management issues. We do, uh, Honourable Minister, welcome the announcement of pending changes to the board given the vacancies that exist and other needs. And while the company's operations are the purview of the executive management, is it envisaged that possible new directors will have greater industry knowledge and technical proficiency, possibly uh, including electrical engineering, who understand what they refer to as power plant language? as well as other possible attributes sought from appointing uh, new directors to conduct the review that you mentioned and which is very important. Thank you. The Honourable Minister. The answer to your last question, Honourable Swat, is yes. Uh, there will be a new set of skills brought on board. Uh, secondly, we've had about three reviews in recent time by qualified engineers of where some of the problems lie. So the problems are known. It's about execution. It's about getting things done. It's about showing the uh, necessary uh, urgency, both at the top, but also at a plant level as well. And to have a significant change in culture within, within ESCOM itself at a plant level. 
uh, uh, you remember well uh, all the discoveries you and I and many others made in 2017 uh, during the ESCOM inquiry, and we certainly share the concern that you have in respect of load sharing as well. Of course, Honorable Mazzoni was very much uh, active with us at that time. I think she is absent today. Thank you, Honorable Minister. The next question, question number 552, has been asked by the Honorable S.H. Boyane to the Minister of Trade, Industry and Competition. The Honorable Minister. Uh, thank you very much, uh, uh, House Chair. The question relates to the Trans South Africa's transition from internal combustion engine technology to electric vehicles. And really, the, the rationale for the, the shift that we're seeking to do is that this is a significant industry, a significant employer of labor in the South African economy. And in the context of climate change, there are risks attached to us not making this transition and making it successfully. The question that Honorable Mbuyani asked uh, has two uh, additional components to it. The one relates to the, the matter of technology. And what we've done here is we're working on two uh, platforms, two technology platforms. The one is obviously electric vehicles, which the question refers to. And the second one is the development of green hydrogen technologies, which would be vital for fuel cell technologies that can power vehicles uh, and indeed many other uh, using uh, users of, uh, of energy in future. There's work being done across government. The CSIR, for example, has done work in the past. Honorable members will know it was a, a leader initially in the, in the work that was done uh, around the dual vehicle. But in addition to that, the Department of Science and Innovation is working uh, on aspects of the hydrogen society. We also have the uh, TIA, that's the Technology Innovation Agency, working on some of these areas. There are research entities that have done technical economic work for us, that have tried to look at what other countries uh, have done. We've used the services of BNM Analytics and TIPS, and we've done work with Deloitte and PwC. So we've tried to draw all of that together in looking at an appropriate uh, road path for us to electric vehicle production. The last leg of the question relates to skills development. And there... Uh, the, the transition to electric uh, vehicle production will require new uh, manufacturing capabilities. And because it's not only that the source of power in electric vehicle changes, it's that quite significant components also change. Uh, the skills transition is going to be a vital part of it. We've put together a team, a task team made up of the seven large auto assemblers, component manufacturers, NUMSA representing organized labor and government to look at the skills element of that transition. Part of what we hope we can achieve is not only to make that transition successfully, but that the auto industry can help to create additional jobs in the value chain to compensate for some of the other challenges that come from a successful transition to um, a, a more uh, climate resilient industrialization path. Thank you very much. Thank you, Honourable Minister. The first supplementary question will be asked by the Honourable Buyane. Thank you, Chair. I will take it. Minister, has the Department done cost-benefit analysis as to how advantageous and beneficial it will be 
for the economy and ordinary South Africans, such as job creation, to transition from internal Abyssinian engine to new energy vehicle. Thank you. Honourable Minister. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Honourable Arimachi. Yes, part of trying to set out the business case for the move to uh, electric vehicles required us to see what are the costs and what are the benefits. Some of that is referred to in the green paper that was published, but critically for us, the auto industry is a very large employer of labor. Just the manufacturing component of it employs more than 100,000 people. We've broken that down into the regional concentration of industry that's very concentrated in the Eastern Cape, in KwaZulu-Natal, and in Gauteng. And in addition to that, some of the component manufacturing also takes place in other parts of South Africa and indeed in neighboring countries. I visited Botswana recently, and we had discussions there about the electric harness manufacturing. In looking at the overall economic impact of the sector, its contribution to our GDP is very, very significant. With the economic multiplier taken into account, it uh, accounts for about 5% of South Africa's GDP and a very large uh, part of the foreign exchange that we earn that we need to use to pay for the fuel and other things that we, we import. So when we look at that, when we look at the impact on the regions, when we look at the impact on jobs, it's clear there's a compelling case. And we've done a careful analysis looking at the advantages of not shifting, the advantages of shifting, the problems of not shifting, the problems with shifting. And based on that, uh, we believe there's an absolutely compelling case for South Africa to make that transition to electric vehicles. Thank you. The next supplementary question will be asked by the Honourable McPherson. Thanks, Chair. Minister, basic education in investment policy will tell you that when you say something and commit to doing it, you need to do it in time so that investors know where you're headed. So in May 2021, yes, your department released the auto green paper for public comment. Yes, the paper, except for BWE, seems to be a good document and one which we might be able to support. It was expected that a white paper would be submitted. Honorable McPherson, there's a member on the virtual platform who's drawing my attention. Yes, Honorable Member? No, thank you very much, Chair. I just wanted to inform McPherson that the DA lost the uh, No, Honorable Member. No, 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 Honorable Member. You are completely out of order. We are now dealing with questions, and the Honorable McPherson has been granted an opportunity to ask a question. You cannot interrupt the member with a trivial, a trivial matter that has absolutely no bearing on these proceedings. Please continue, Honorable Member. Thanks, Chair. You might want to consider throwing him out. It was expected that a white paper would be submitted to Cabinet in October 2021, but has yet to be done so nearly 12 months after your own imposed deadline. Why is your department dragging its feet on this important policy paper? And by when will this paper be submitted to Cabinet for consideration? Honourable Minister. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Chairperson. And uh, uh, Honourable McPherson, uh, we did indeed last year publish a paper. We set out a number of proposals based on what industry had felt was the necessary elements of a transition. 
And then we did something important based on the public comments that came in, because that paper was a draft green paper to enable public comments to be made. Based on all of that, we commissioned research on costing the various aspects of what each of the parties required. The OEMs, those are the big automakers, the component manufacturers, each had specific requirements. Looking at the bill of what it would have cost South Africa to make that transition, it was unaffordable. And so we commenced with a second phase of discussion to find a roadmap that was more affordable. And we took into account the developments in other countries. Uh, fortunately for us, uh, there's now an, there's a growing body of um, uh, information and evidence available about what countries are going to be doing to get onto this, uh, uh, this um, green road path. So having uh, initially set out a frame, receiving the, the uh, advice from the public, getting comments from experts, costing all of this, realizing from those comments that the original proposals and what the parties needed as they indicated in their submissions was not going to be affordable, we did what was sensible. We reviewed how can we make that work. And perhaps just to very briefly, given the limited time, to take uh, the House into my confidence on this issue and say, the challenge ultimately was about the cost of a consumer incentive. How wide it would be, what would be required to make it effective, and how costly it would be. And given the fiscal constraints, that path of a very expensive uh, green energy and electric vehicle path needed to be adjusted. Finally, we also then engaged a number of partner countries, the IPG group, uh, in the run-up to the Glasgow uh, Conference of the Parties, COP26, to work out how uh, partner countries can help finance South Africa's green transition. They made a commitment there, a significant commitment, and uh, that commitment has now been unpacked. We're working through the terms of this. In fact, um, uh, we, we're quite close to finalizing a proposal for that to cabinet. And I should add then really in the, in the half a minute that's available, we've also had to take into account our electricity grid. A sudden move to electric vehicles in the, in the domestic market will place uh, the, the road path under danger because if you have a significant additional demand from energy for the charging of the vehicles, they would affect the effectiveness of it. Taking all of this into account, what we've had to do is adjust some of our timeframes and uh, ensure that we have a robust fit-for-purpose roadmap. Thank you. Thank you, Honourable Minister. The third supplementary question is to be asked by the Honourable Chua Ku. I'll take it on behalf of Honourable Chua Ku. Thank you very much. Minister, we do not have sufficient power for domestic and industrial use as things stand in the country. What measures will you put in place to ensure that the introduction of electric cars is not hampered by load shedding? Generally, how would you describe the impact of load, load shedding on, on the industry in the country? Have you had engagements with Mr. Godan to tell him that this mismanagement of ESCOM is costing the country? Thank you very much. The Honorable Minister. Uh, thank you very much, uh, uh, Chairperson. So, let me break the load shedding issue into two different components. The first component is if we have a very high uh, take up of electric vehicles among consumers in South Africa, 
it would place an additional load on our energy system. The second leg of this is, if we don't make the transition to electric vehicles, we lose the opportunity to export a large uh, volume of vehicles that create jobs here in South Africa and help us to industrialize. Two key markets where we sell an enormous number of vehicles have taken a broad regulatory approach. The UK says that from 2030, uh, they will uh, no longer permit the, uh, the sale of new ICE vehicles. This is um, uh, uh, the, the vehicles that use the internal combustion engine. The European Union says from 2035, they won't do this. So we've got to position ourselves that a big part of our production shift must be for export markets. And then blend slowly as we build our energy system, we enable a greater uh, offtake of electric vehicles in the domestic market. Minister Gordon is uh, very aware and familiar with the strategy, supportive of the strategy. And we take into account the greening of the energy mix in South Africa. If we have uh, energy that is principally generated from coal, the climate change benefit of driving an electric vehicle that pulls energy that is generated from coal is more limited than if your grid has a significant renewable energy together, of course, with all the other baseload technologies that we need. So these are the kind of discussions. You've pointed to some of the complexities of getting this balance right. And, uh, and certainly we're working on it. Thank you very much. Thank you, Honorable Minister. The last supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable Nkosi Kwebekulu. Uh, I will take for Nkosi Kwebekulu. With the report focused on the production, what measures have been taken to ensure that the standardization and availability of, change, of, change, of charging stations? Thank you. Did you get the question, Honourable Minister? Please proceed. Thank you very much. I think what the question, uh, just to repeat the question as I understand it, is given our shift of production to electric vehicle that we're planning, what are we doing to ensure that there's a charging infrastructure in South Africa and that there's some standardization so that you don't need a charging station for your Toyota, like the one that I drive, or for uh, a, a VW Polo, uh, as another member may drive, or for a BMW that yet another member may drive. So the charging station infrastructure has been built. It's private sector-led at the moment. We've worked, um, government has worked with, uh, in fact, I have the Minister of Transport in the House now. Uh, he's released um, the, 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 the work on the transition to green transport, which has as its core, one element, one core element is charging station infrastructure. We're working on interoperability that you'd be able to charge cars irrespective of the make of the car. So all of these things are now being built into the phase. As I said in response to the earlier question by the honorable member from the EFF, we've got to do the speed of the rollout, taking into account the challenges South Africa face with our energy grid. If we move too fast and we have too much of the energy going into charging batteries at this point, then we undermine the effort to have stability in uh, our electricity. So we're on to that. We recognize it's an important area, and we hope we can do more in future. Thank you. Thank you, Honorable Minister.
Honourable Members, question number 567 has been asked by the Honourable Piri to the Minister of Public Enterprises. The Honourable Minister. Chairperson, the South African Airways strategic intent as per the South African Airways Act as it exists at the moment is firstly to promote air links with the Republic's main business trading and tourism markets within the African continent and globally. And secondly, uh, and since the state has a developmental orientation and regards South African Airways as a national carrier and strategic asset, that would enable the state to preserve its ability to contribute to key domestic, inter-regional and international air linkages. To realize the above objectives for the newly restructured SAA, the government has un undertaken the following steps to ensure SAA is sustainable and be a facilitator of economic growth. Firstly, the conclusion and implementation of the business rescue plan. This results in SAA being able to compete uh, on a competitive basis with free from all legacy challenges and with the introduction of a strategic equity partner. Secondly, the conclusion of the regulatory processes to enable the disposal of 51% of the shares to a consortium. Thirdly, the injection of operating capital by the Takasa Consortium to enable the growth of the airline. And fourthly, the appointment of a competent board and management to implement sustainable and, and an agile business plan. The short to medium term network strategy of the airline is rooted in deepening intercontinental or intracontinental connections. Since the start of operations or the restart of operations in September 2021, SAA flies to the following African countries, Nigeria, Ghana, Zimbabwe, DRC and Mauritius. The promotion of the development of the tourism sector and the facilitation of intercontinental trade and economic development are at the heart of SAA's value proposition. The single African air transport market is a flagship project of the African Union, Agenda 2063, and it is to create a single unified air transport market in Africa to advance the liberal, uh, liberalization of civil aviation on the continent and to act as an impetus to the continent's economic integration. In recognition of the importance of expediting the realization of the AFCTA, uh, AFCFTA, as Minister Patel will remind me, plans are underway to develop routes that connect the common monetary area and the rest of South Africa to the, and uh, South Africa to the rest of the African continent. Finally, to demonstrate SAA's initiatives in implementing these objectives, uh, SAA has entered into a partnership with Kenyan Airways, which will be consolidated once the uh, transaction with Takatsu is over, and signed a strategic partnership framework. These two airlines have contracted to work together to increase passenger traffic, cargo opportunities, and general trade by leveraging on the respective technical and strategic advantages of the two airlines. Thank you. Thank you, Honourable Minister. The first supplementary question will go to the Honourable Piri. Honourable 
ngauri una urenga hao ukwinyeleza oyubu tama hao wukati hamu huso na wukati hata kazo konsertiamu kama fungo haya ane abanduri akadiva oimu hatu kwinyelezi wanga commission ya competition mbuziso ya ngandi ya uri one hao hudoiti amini ngauri haya mafungo akadiva oimu hatu kwinyelezi wa uri ado solve yanga shifinga kana hani Wane arari eh, mubuso kana muhasho wabu udoita hani uri. Ukunyeleze kana undondo meze uri. Ezitu, shisongo shikisa kauri eli bupo. Liparaziwe bupo la Afrika chipembe. Ndolibuwa mwurise. Honorable Minister. Chairperson and Honorary. Honorable Piri, um, the Competition Commission is being urged to speed up the processes uh, under its purview as uh, soon as possible uh, so that other regulatory processes can be concluded as well. And the object of the exercise is that by the end of the year or soon thereafter, uh, this partnership between Takatso and government uh, will be formalized and commercialized. Secondly, the whole purpose of the business rescue process was to ensure that we save as many jobs as possible, that we secure as many assets as possible, and that we keep the connectivity, which I indicated earlier on, between South Africa and the continent on the one hand, and globally on the other hand, as intact as possible, uh, as we realized uh, the, uh, the importance of this during the COVID pandemic. So liquidation has never been an option. However, uh, I must be frank, as we sit here today, there's a matter in the High Court in Cape Town where parties who originally could not show a single cent of any consequence in order to become the strategic equity partner have initiated some litigation, and we believe that the entire purpose of this, and the, and it's interesting that a political party from this House had a legal representative present during these hearings today, and one wonders what their interest in this matter is. Um, but there are any number of efforts at this stage to ensure that this very important project in restructuring a state asset and ensuring that we secure the jobs of pilots, of airline staff, and people on the ground is sabotaged to whatever extent possible. From our side as government, we want to ensure that this project succeeds and that everything possible will be done to avoid any attempt to liquidate SAA. Thank you. Thank you, Honorable Minister. The next supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable Essa. Honorable Chairperson, thank you again for the opportunity. Honorable Minister, I, I, I hear and take cognizance of what you've just said, and I'm digesting what happened this morning in court, etc. But uh, with due respect, you know, recently we learned that the International Air Services Licensing Council has revoked 20 of SAA's international routes because the airline cannot service them due to limited capacity, of course. 
Considering South, South Africa's overstretched public finances, of which you are well aware of, Minister, and the burden that SA continues to place on the, on the fiscus, why, why will you not consider, Honorable Minister, terminating this SAA Takatsu deal and selling off the remaining assets of SAA to pay off the outstanding debts? I mean, it's just common business sense. Uh, if not, why not, Minister? Thank you. The Honorable Minister. Well, I don't know, uh, Honorable Isaac and Chairperson, whether it's common business sense or whether it's common commercial interest. And there's a difference between the two. Because there are, there are many commercial interests that have been trying, uh, using various means, and let me be euphemistic about that for now, uh, both in this house and elsewhere, to undermine this project, to ensure that it does not succeed, and that indeed, uh, the assets of SAA built over a long period of time, which includes buildings, lounges, etc., uh, put up for as, as a, on a fire sale, so that on a very cheap basis, those assets are picked up by other commercial enterprises and utilized for their purposes. And we believe that the state loses even more in that way than in this particular instance. But secondly, and much more importantly, uh, on the question of revoking licenses, the licenses can be revoked and licenses can be reapplied. This is not a granite wall and it's a matter that we can attend to as the airline uh, spreads its wings. But this uh, fiction that there will be even a greater reliance on the fiscus is precisely that. It's fiction. The only cost that the state has to bear is the costs of implementing the business rescue plan. From that point onwards, there are no further calls on the fiscus at all. And there's a mistaken notion among some in the media and elsewhere that there will be an additional burden uh, on, on the fiscus. The precise, uh, if you like, deal and uh, proposition to anybody that was interested in SAA was that the state takes the responsibility in order to clean up the past. But secondly, any new entrant or partner will pay for any operating costs that are involved into the future. And that is what we are implementing. Thank you. Thank you, Honorable Minister. The next supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable Komane. Nkosi Che, Zabuzo and Dimi Imbuzo, Honorable Koman. Mr. Chamnandas was Oslan Over the past few years, we have seen rapid decommissioning of many airlines. The most recent is that the final liquidation of South African Express Airways, leaving travelers with very limited choices for air travel. However, the so-called sale of SAA shares to Tagato. Recently, it has been reported that the International Air Services Licensing Council has revoked 20 of the airline's routes and questioned the business model of Tagato. What is actually nature of the sale of SAA to Tagato? 
when will the airline be able to fly optimally again? I thank you. The Honourable Minister. So, Chairperson, must I re refer to this person by her first name as well? Or the middle name that they might uh, be the case? Because again, we are allowing in this house where there's supposed to be a dignified respect for every member for insults to be conveyed all the time. And it's time that these people in the red uniforms are called to order. But let me get to the point. Honourable Honor Minister, just before you continue, no, indeed, members must refer to each other in dignified terms. I did not pick up. Honourable Member, I'm going to put you out. Down. I'm going to put you out. Honourable Honorable Paulson, this is the last time that you do what you're doing. It's the last time. I'm going to ask you to leave the chamber. Honourable Minister, indeed, I did not pick it up because there was a, a delay with the translation, but that's why we have the whips here. And the whips must alert us in terms of the rules if it is not adhered to. But indeed, we expect all honourable members to be engaging in a respectful manner. It's only courteous to do so and polite to do so. Please uh, uh, so continue, Honourable Minister. Out, Chairperson, that people like us survived the apartheid security branch. We have no problems in surviving this at uh, all. Honourable Minister. Let me make that clear. Honourable Minister, will you continue? Let me make that very clear. Honourable Minister. Honourable Paulson. Honourable Paulson. No, let me get to the question. I have cautioned you. Can you leave the chamber now, please? Thank you. Honourable Paulson, I'm waiting for you to leave the chamber. Honourable Minister, will you also address the chairperson, please, so that we can get through Certainly. this question session. Thank you. On the, on the question of SA Express, Chair, SA Express was brought to its knees because of theft and corruption. It had nothing to do with this administration. It's regrettable. People did lose their jobs. And we didn't want a repetition of that as far as SAA is concerned. And I've answered exhaustively yes. about the kind of efforts that, that we've actually uh, made. On the question of uh, licenses, I've just addressed that so the Honourable Member can uh, refer to that particular point. And then on the on the sale of shares, uh, that's a normal commercial process that we'll go through. And once we are ready, the public will know about it. Thank you. Honourable Members, Honourable Members, please don't behave, behave in a juvenile manner. It's really unbecoming. Really, it's unbecoming. The next supplementary question, Honorable Paulson, will you leave the chamber now? You had plenty of time to do so. Honorable Paulson, can you make your way out of the chamber so that we can continue with the business of today? Thank you. Honorable member, if you do not want to voluntarily leave the chamber, I will ask for assistance to get you out of the chamber. Honorable member, will you leave the chamber? Sergeant at arms, will you assist the honorable member out of the chamber, please? And if he doesn't want to do so voluntarily, we call for assistance to have him removed. Sergeant at arms, can you call for assistance to remove the member? 
Thank you. Honorable members, I also do not expect you to interfere when we are implementing the rules of the House. You are also not assisting the process. I now recognize the Honorable E.M. Butelezi. I will take uh, E.M. Butelezi. Uh, while SAA is expecting to play a, a key strategic role in continental development agenda, its need to consolidate a domestic presence first. Is the department planning to ensure that SAA becomes a big player in domest- domestically as the current dominating airline? The Honourable Minister. Thank you for the question, Honourable Member. Uh, clearly, the aim is to start domestically, but also SAA has played a very important role in intra-African connectivity. And uh, there are many countries that rely on SAA uh, to get to different parts of the continent, but certainly to South Africa. And that helps as far as commerce is concerned, investment is concerned, and tourism is concerned as well. So uh, it's, it's got very few planes, as you know, at, at the moment. And once the transaction takes place, there'll be an injection of capital. There'll be more planes that will be leased and there'll be a wider network that will actually operate both within South Africa, but beyond that as well. Thank you. Thank you, Honourable Minister. Honourable Members, we will now proceed to the next question. And question number 558 has been asked by the Honourable F. Jacobs to the Honourable Minister of Small Business and Development. I will now recognise the Honourable Deputy Minister who will respond on the virtual platform. The Honourable Deputy Minister... Thank you very much, uh, Chair. The National Treasury uh, was entrusted with the responsibility of implementing the bounce back scheme. The bounce back scheme <clears throat> comprises of two mechanisms. The first mechanism is a loan guarantee by government to eligible businesses. The loans will assist eligible businesses in recovering from constraints in accessing finance due to COVID-19 lockdowns. The July 2021 civil unrest as disasters like floods affecting KZN. This scheme will also support economic growth and foster job creation in South Africa. The Department of Small Business has requested the National Treasury to allow uh, non-banking financial institutions such as uh, small enterprise finance agencies, CIFA, to access the balance or to access the 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 the, 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 the bank scheme directly. Since this is aligned to their uh, mandate and they have requisite systems and expertise to roll out the scheme of the nation. Thank you very much. The first supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable Jacobs. Thank you, House Chair. Um, Access to affordable finance for SMMEs is the biggest problem that small business face. Uh, we had the COVID uh, guarantee scheme of 200 billion. The banks only provided 18 billion for small business. 
Now we have the bank uh, bounce back scheme. Again, only one bank uh, subscribed to this. If our financial sector is not willing to cooperate to make low-cost finance available to support our um, emerging businesses, what other interventions can we uh, bring to bear? Thanks, Chair. The Honourable Deputy Minister. Yes, uh, I agree with you, Honourable Member. Hence, as a department, we have been implementing a credit guarantee scheme called Kula Credit Guarantee Scheme, which offers individual portfolio and supplier credit guarantees as well as hybrid of guarantees. For For this scheme, we have almost all commercial banks you can name them APSA, FNB, NetBank, the U-Bank, Sasol, Mercantile Bank, Mr. Price Group, and others. The KCG is more successful because SMMEs who are benefiting from the credit guarantee also get the benefit of accessing business de- development support, which is not the case with other schemes. We will continue to call upon National Treasury to capitalize this scheme because of its success as the 300 million rand that was invested in this scheme enabled KCG to leverage over six times, meaning if Treasury can provide a guarantee of 10 billion, a KCG can guarantee total loans to the tune of 62.5 billion rents, which will go a long way in providing funding to support SMEs that desperately need it. Thank you, Chair. The second supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable De Villiers. Thank you, Chair. Deputy Minister, during the COVID pandemic, we, we've seen findings of massive corruption relating to the allocation of COVID funds especially relating to the allocation of uh, double PE tenders and the illegal payment of TERS UIF payments to government-employed cadres. What measures will the minister take to ensure that the allocation of funds from the bounce-back scheme are not also dispersed illegally? And will the minister commit to make sure that the full list of bounce-back scheme beneficiaries is published for oversight to ensure transparency and minimize corruption? The Honorable Deputy Minister. Thank you, Chair. Indeed, in acknowledging and recognizing the question, we as a department indeed continue to be on the lookout as we do our work and to ensure that there is no uh, mismanagement of the fees and where that could be identified, there will always be processes to manage those areas. Thank you very much. The next follow-up question will be asked by the Honorable Tenjani. Thank you very much, uh, Chairperson. Chairperson is not Tenjani, it's Tenjani. Mm, Tenjani, my apologies for that, sir. Thank you very much. Uh, Deputy Minister, the Post Bank has for many years been the one closest to the people. Now, the question to you, Deputy Minister, is have you had have you, you had any interaction uh, with the Minister of uh, Communication with the aim of uh, restructuring the post bank? 
into becoming a viable viable banking viable banking for for the small business if yes if no why not thank you thank you honorable member the honorable deputy minister thank you chair uh, i should indicate that uh, we have not yet uh, engaged with the uh, the department of communications and indeed it's an important matter because we must explore uh, how we strengthen uh, our banking system in order to assist the small businesses. I thank you. The last supplementary question will be asked by Mkosi Bien Lutuli. Thank you, Honorable Chair. Honorable uh, Minister, uh, following the dis- dismal failure of the old loan guarantee scheme, how does the Department of Small Business and Development uh, intend to put in to put in place check to reduce the risk of the future rent? Uh, application from the SMMEs. Thank you. The Honourable Deputy Minister. Uh, Thank you very much, Chair. Uh, And I think the question is important if I understood uh, uh, Babul Tuli very well. Uh, Because we we have to, uh, when doing banking in our work, ensure that uh, uh, even those who have not been able to benefit can benefit. And as a department, uh, we have to be looking and we do look closer to these matters of uh, our, our, our business's work to ensure that uh, there is uh, accountability and those who are employed report uh, to us quite well. And indeed, I assure you, uh, Majlanduna, who's our hambagash. Thank you, Honorable uh, Deputy Minister. Honorable Members, we will now come to question number 593 that has been asked by the Honorable Esak to the Minister of Public Enterprises. May I ask the other members who are standing around to take up their seats, please? Continue, Honorable Minister. Uh, thank you, Chairperson. Honorable Lisa, thank you for the question. Uh, the mobilization of skills has been happening over a period of time. And uh, we've approached business organizations of all shades and types, many professional organizations as well, and have had good responses. I referred earlier on to the following, which uh, Eskom has indicated, that they have sent out a media statement on the 16th of September, 2022, wherein a call was made for skills through a crowdsourcing initiative. Crowdsourcing is a practice of obtaining information or input into a task or project by enlisting the services of many people, either paid or unpaid, typically via the internet. South Africa has a pool of skilled persons who may be available and willing to support ESKIM 
to resolve business challenges that have a negative impact on the country. The opportunity was prompted by multiple submissions to ESCOM from experienced engineers and ex-ESCOM employees offering support. An SA-ESCOM crowdsourcing initiative could allow ESCOM to supplement its existing skills base to help address its operational challenges. The SEC, as it is called, uh, will leverage partnerships with statutory and non-statutory bodies, such as the Engineering Council of South Africa, the Black Engineers Council of South Africa, and many others. This initiative will be piloted within the generation space with a focus on engineering-related skills. It's important to note that the crowdsourcing initiative will be driven by the needs of the business and will follow a standard governance process. A project plan has been drafted to outline the design and delivery of, its, of, of this initiative. The concept has the potential to be expanded to other business areas and skills in the medium term, as well as other SOEs in the, in the long term uh, by themselves. A crowdsourcing mailbox was launched uh, already, and this is actively monitored to date, as I indicated earlier, Honorable Isak, they have received 179 responses, which are being added to the database. These submissions will undergo vetting to ensure they meet ESCOM's governance standards. Additionally, Generation and IT have developed a basic database or list already with previous submissions and are using this to meet the existing needs. The platform will ensure sustainability and allow South Africans the opportunity to contribute. We're also working uh, with various professional organizations to establish an MOU to strengthen this database and improve ESCOM's engineering training program and professional registration process. The next engagement will be held on the 17th of October. Thank you. Thank you, Honorable Minister. The first supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable Esak. Thank you, Honorable Chair. Honorable Minister, that's yeah, a busy day at the office, isn't it, today? <laughs> Honorable Minister, in what has been one of the worst load-shedding episodes on record, ESCOM's CEO and COO have finally started to change their language to reflect the true severity of the situation with words like catastrophe now entering their daily press conferencing vocabulary. Will the minister inform the House if he will support the call for the dissolution of the National Energy Crisis Commission, which of course both of us now know is become top secret, and the appointment in its place of an outside industry expert to oversee the implementation of the energy response plan? If not, minister, I must ask you, then why not, with due respect? Thank you. The Honourable Minister. Uh, Chairperson, I don't know what the applause is about. These are very ordinary questions. Um, so as far as the national... Or the Honourable Members. Yeah, no, sure. You, I'm sure you'll do better. Uh, you can try. The, as far as Chairperson, the National Energy uh, Commission is concerned that the President has established it's neither top secret, nor is it unknown. 
On the 25th of July, he made an open announcement. Subsequently, there have been briefings to all sorts of constituencies on the four or five work streams that are currently being uh, undertaken. And uh, we've been fairly open from the ESCOM side and from the department itself. So where top secret comes from, I'm not sure. Secondly, uh, it's, it's well known. The president has said it. Many others have said it. And you've just said it. That our load sharing situation is an unacceptable one. And I've said it earlier on as well. Mr. McPherson, just give me a chance. Why don't you just give me a chance? Chair, you know, if the honorable member, as Honorable Patel said earlier on, would just listen, it would be useful. I don't think he's an engineer. I don't think he knows everything. Or, just or, listen. Or, or, honorable, anyway, honorable, honorable, order, honorable members. Order. But Honorable all Minister, uh, order, order. Honorable Minister, you must also realize listening is a skill. Yes. And not all of us have that skill. Please continue, Honorable Minister. In my... Honorable members, Honorable McPherson, Honorable McPherson, Honorable McPherson, let's allow the Minister to respond. He is the Minister of Public Enterprises. We don't want to hear from you. Continue, Honorable Minister. So in, in addition, Chairperson, in my not limited experience, apart from skill, listening is also a sign of humility. Uh, and that's the more important thing. Now, on the question of outside experts, I indicated to you that we've got three different reports from three different uh, sets of experts, including former uh, ESCOM engineers that had collectively some hundred years of experience in ESCOM. And uh, we, we now have this crowdsourcing initiative as well to bring in experts as well. And of course, the ultimate point of accountability is Parliament itself. So you're welcome to ask any question. Those that are, have the relevant answers and who are doing the relevant work will certainly appear before you, Chairperson, and make their information available. Thank you. The second supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable Aaron. Thank you, House Chair, and thank you, Minister. Um, Minister, the um, a reliable fleet of Power stations requires uh, the engineering and maintenance skills, and we know that that process is underway. But a reliable fleet also requires um, easy and read readily available access to manufacturers' plant, uh, parts and support. Um, as far as I understand it, parts for coal-powered power stations are diminishing around the world, um, and this is making it more difficult for ESKIM to procure those parts. Does ESKIM have sufficient flexibility in the procurement space to procure the right parts and supports from the manufacturers that's, that, are, that are required? Thank you. The Honourable Minister. Uh, Honourable Heron and Chairperson, uh, there's uh, more than adequate supply. And in particular, as I indicated earlier in the afternoon, the original equipment manufacturers are both on site they have been given some additional responsibilities, and they supply the parts. In addition, there are many South African firms that are also producing a limited set of parts of good quality that are also available to ESCOM. But there's also some businesses, chairperson, that are producing less than adequate quality of, of parts. 
uh, that need to be done away with as far as ESCOM is concerned as well. So at this point in time, uh, as far as procurement is concerned, there is no uh, serious challenge to worry about. Thank you. Thank you, Honourable Minister. The third supplementary question will be asked by the Honourable Chabalala. Thank you so much, House Chairperson. I must say, indeed, today it's a beautiful day. We have saw the city of Johannesburg having another speaker and the removal of that Dagama, indeed, it was a good result. So we urge them to continue to remove that in Popalat. She must be next. Honorable Minister, since ESCOM will be retaining and reskilling its workers for the renewable energy sector, has ESCOM ever considered extending the same retaining and reskilling initiative to capacitate its engineers and technicians with advanced skills to manage the current fleet of coal-fired power stations instead of recalling the experienced former engineers and technicians? Does ESCOM have the financial capacity to recall uh, the experienced former engineers and technicians? Thank you so much, Minister. Thank you, Honorable Jabalala. ESCOM does have the resources. ESCOM uh, is training both uh, future engineers, but also importantly, as I indicated, there's a system of mentoring and coaching uh, that needs to be put in place. There's the revitalization of the ESCOM Academy that is currently work in progress. And uh, the old engineers are not called upon to take the place of current managers and operators. They are called upon to stand next to them. And what is clear from all of the reports that we are getting is that having qualifications, even PhDs, is no substitute for experience. Right. So what we need to do is they are extremely good, highly qualified people. They need to be mentored by the more experienced people in order to grow, in order to manage better, and in order to operate the plants better. And the consequence of all of that uh, over a period of time is going to be uh, a much better output from the coal-powered uh, power station than we have today. Today, the energy availability factor is below 60%. Ideally, you want it to be above 80%. And the best of the power stations, I'd rather not mention it, but there is one power station that is doing extremely well. Uh, and I'm not mentioning it because we don't want that to be sabotage. Thank you. Thank you, Honourable Minister. The last supplementary question will be asked by the Honourable Mawatwe. Thank you very much, House Chair. I'll be taking it. Please proceed. Minister, the white engineers who were there during apartheid service, only the population that the racists wanted to service. The problem with ESCOM is that they did not expand their production capacity to be able to handle expanded provision of electricity to the rest of the population. There are, however, experienced black engineers, such as Masheka, Mashela Koko, and many others, that the router got rid of when he arrived at ESCOM. Will you be looking at inviting back those black engineers, such as Koko and others? If not, why not? Thank you. The Honourable Minister. Uh, the answer on the individual that you mentioned, Honourable Member, is no. Uh, because of the history that uh, they enjoy within ESCOM, 
and the kind of damage that was caused, notwithstanding the Twitter claims to the contrary, uh, that was done during that particular period, which we are still recovering from today. So you are right that on many different fronts, water, electricity, housing, land, the apartheid system did not make any of that available adequately to the majority of the population. You're also right that it is during the democratic era that there was a vast expansion of access to health, electricity, water, etc., uh, that people didn't enjoy at that particular point in time. But that's our legacy. And our job is to overcome that legacy and ensure that there is equity amongst uh, all South Africans, that there is social justice amongst all South Africans, and that all South Africans enjoy an increasing standard of living compatible with human dignity. We don't have it yet. There's a lot of work to do in that particular regard. And then as far as energy and power is concerned, I've indicated in the course of the afternoon, I've indicated in the course of the afternoon, Honorable Chair, that there are any number of initiatives that work now to minimize load sharing, and we must get there sooner rather than later. But at the end of the day, the objective must be energy security for all South Africans, both uh, individuals and businesses as well. Thank you. Thank you, Honorable Minister. Honorable Members, the time allocated for questions have expired. Outstanding replies received will be printed in Ansat. We now get to the motion on the order paper. Honorable members, the next item on the order paper is a decision of the question on the draft resolution in the name of the Chief Whip of the Opposition for the establishment of an ad hoc committee on Palapala. I wish to remind honorable members that this draft resolution was debated in a virtual mini plenary yesterday but the decision thereon can only be taken in a full plenary. I now put the motion. Are there any objections to the motion being agreed to? Yes, Honourable Member. Thank you, Honourable Chair. We wish to object. We object to the motion put by the, uh, the leader of the opposition party. Thank you very much. Are there any other objections? Honourable Chief Whip. I would like to call for a division, please, House Chair. A division having been called, the bells will be rung for five minutes. Recording stopped.
honourable members, the Speaker has determined that in accordance with the rules, a manual voting procedure will be used for the division. And firstly, in order to establish a quorum, I would request the table to confirm that we have the requisite number of members physically present in the House and also on the virtual platform. And party whips will then be given an opportunity to confirm the number of their members present and indicate also if they vote for or against the question. A member wishes to abstain or vote against the party vote may do so by informing the chairperson. The table has confirmed that we do have the requisite quorum and we will now proceed. The question before the House is that a draft resolution in the name of the Chief Whip of the Opposition be agreed to. Voting will now commence. The doors of the chamber will remain locked and members are not allowed to enter the platform until voting is concluded. I will now recognize the party whips who will confirm the number, the number, Honorable Kwankwa, the number, not the percentage of their members present in the chamber and on the virtual platform. And they must also indicate if they vote for or against the question. The ANC. Thank you, Honorable House Chair. The ANC vote against. At the visual platform, we are 154. In the House, here in the chamber, 41, that makes 195 voting against. Thank you very much. Thank you. The DA. House Chair, there are 53 DA members on the platform. There are 18 members in the House, 71 DA, 71 DA members voting in favor of accountability. The EFF. Thank you very much, House Chair. In the House, we have 13, and then on virtual, we have 18. That makes 31, and we're in favor. Thank you so much. The IFP. The IFP. Uh, in the House, we are three. In the platform, we are five. We are voting in favor. The FF+. Plus. Thank you, House Chairperson. We are five members on the virtual platform, four in the House. That's nine members voting in favor. The ACDP. Thank you, House Chair. We are three members in the House in support. Thank you. The UDM. One in the House voting in favor, Chair. Excellent. ATM. Uh, thank you, Chairperson. We are two on virtual. We are voting in favor. Good. Thank you, House Chair. We're one on the platform and one in the House, and we're voting against. Thank you. The, the NFP. Order, order, honorable members. Order, 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 honorable members. The NFP. The AIC. The PAC and Al Jamaa. PAC one on the platform. Ah, no, wait for me, chair. Chair. The PAC. PAC one on the platform and voting in favor. 
Al-Jama. Is there any member that wishes to abstain or vote differently to their party? There's none. The voting session is now closed. Honourable Members, the outcome of the division is as follows. There's no abstentions. There's 126 that voted in favour. 199 has voted against. And the motion is thus not agreed to. Thank you. Order, Honourable Members. Order. Order. Order, Honourable Members. Yippee. Order. The Secretary will read the second order. Order, Honorable Members. Consideration of report of Portfolio Committee on Social Development on Fundraising Amendment Bill. I now recognize the Honorable Chief Whip of the Majority Party. Thank you, Honorable House Chair. I move that the report be adopted. The motion is that order, Honorable Members. Honorable Cuthbert. The motion is that the report be adopted. Are there any objections? No objections. Are there objections to the report? There's no objections. Agree to. The Secretary will read the third order. Second reading debate. Fundraising Amendment Bill. I now want to recognize the Honorable Minister of Social Development who will start the debate. The Honorable Minister. Uh, thank you very much, Honorable Chairperson of the House, Honorable Members uh, and uh, comrades and uh, fellow South Africans. Thank you for the opportunity to address this Honorable House in this debate of the Fundraising Amendment Bill. The bill that I'm introducing today proposes amendments to the 1978 Fundraising Act 107, mind 1978. It is worth noting that 44 years after this piece of legislation was first brought through, a restricted parliament that served the parochial interests of a narrow population of our country Today, I, Lindy Wezulu, I am presenting to this democratically composed... Honourable, Honourable Minister of Social Development, can you just hold? May I ask those members who are leaving the House to do so quietly so that we can get on with our business? 
Honorable members, I didn't ask for you now to create another problem for us. Please. Please continue, Honorable Minister. Thank you very much, um, Chairperson of the House. Um, The bill resonates with the ongoing legislative changes that were duly processed by this Honorable House. These included the need to align with, for instance, the provisions of the Disaster Management Act, the Public Finance Management Act, and the Nonprofit Organization Act. As much as the reformulations that we are introducing are inspired by our democratic ethos, it is very important to note that the bill intentionally seeks to complement the existing programs that concern the eventuality of external shocks, disasters, and similar emergencies which we have all experienced in the past few months. This bill consolidates, rationalizes, and simplifies otherwise desperate funds. In view of the slowing global economic outlook and the tight availability of relief funds, through this bill, we seek to consolidate the existing multiple funds into the unified disaster relief and national social development fund with the aim of effecting lasting recovery. This fund will be used to effect sustainable socioeconomic reconstruction among populations and communities that have adversely been affected by external shocks such as the pandemics, social unrest, climate change, and a host of others. The existing provision of the Social Assistance Act and its supporting regulations will ease the intentions of the bill. In light of pressing need to attend to the felt needs of the victims of these external shocks, extra measures have been put in place to guard against fraud, corruption, and impropriety where the fund's resources are concerned. Likewise, the misappropriation and handling of public and partners' resources with impunity will be dealt with decisively, working closely with all law enforcement authorities and adequately respond to the recurrence of external shocks that in recent years and months have been experienced by people of South Africa as economic depression, a health pandemic, social unrest, food insecurity and hunger, climate change, and a host or a lot of others. Honorable Chairperson, as our recent history self-evidently attests, shocks, national disasters, and similar emergencies are lived realities that all South Africans know. True to their nature, not only did these unfortunate occurrences immediately disorient the lives and livelihoods of families in different communities throughout our society, they particularly impact on vulnerable sections of our constituencies adversely. The hardship that have been impressed by these external shocks will continue to be visible in our communities owing to the structural nature of poverty, inequality, and economic exclusion in our society. It is on account of this observation that the intentions that we are proposing in the bill are timeless and responsive to the people's felt needs. Yes, the recent floods that largely affected KwaZulu-Natal, Eastern Cape, and Northwest provinces imparted an indispensable lesson to our institutions. Key among these lessons is the need to optimally use weather system data as disaster intelligence. This intelligence will prove useful when, for example, one, it is assembled 
and activated for the purposes of saving lives and property. It is factored into planning, resourcing, establishing and managing flood-responsive partnerships and reinforcing institutional capabilities. And lastly, socializing flood adoption and resilience strategies at the family as well as community levels where the necessary basic leadership to embrace and realize the bill's intervention resides. We wish to express our appreciation to the stakeholders who contributed their expertise towards making the bill. We also thank the Portfolio Committee on Social Development who added their value, their in-value insights to and processed the bill for approval by the National Assembly. Honorable Chairperson and members, I support this bill as it serves to strengthen our disaster management ecosystem and also call on our people to be aware of the challenges that we face so that they themselves can assist us in planning together to make sure that they are saved in times of disasters. I thank you, Chairperson. Thank you, Honorable Minister. The next speaker is the Honorable Mvana. Thank you, Chair of Chairs. The fundraising amendment bill and strengthening governance system. The amendment of the fundraising act, number 107 of 1978, comes at a critical time when the country has recently experienced devastating, devastating health and natural disasters in the form of the COVID-19 pandemic and the floods in KwaZulu-Natal and also part of Eastern Cape and Northwest provinces. Given the reality of increasing climate change and consequences that this will have on health, food security, shelter, access to water and energy, among other things. Experts have warned that countries need to strengthen their disaster management legislation such that it is a responsive, risk-averse, and informed by mitigation measures as more occurrences of disasters are expected. The United Nations reports that the least developed and low to middle income uh, countries are most at risk given the extent of underdeveloped infrastructure and limited economic options in response to this crisis. Acknowledging the expected increase in crisis and disaster prevalence, it is worthwhile to note that the Office of the AG has over past financial years expressed its findings and concern to the committee on the four disaster funds, the disaster refund that is active, the state president fund that is dormant, the refugee relief fund, which is also dormant, the South African National Defense Force fund. These funds of which have remained dormant, as I have already said, this effectively means that there are amounts of money that lie locked in these three different domain funds. 
making it difficult to address wide-ranging emergency situation affecting vulnerable communities. Of most concern to both the committee and the AG is that some of the funds could not be audited as they are dormant and also that they are not aligned to the Public Finance Management Act. Therefore, reporting on them is not legally required. These funds are governed by various boards and the PFMA sets legal principles of fiduciary duties of accounting officers. Alignment of the Fundraising Act to the Public Finance Management Act is therefore a critical amendment of the bill. The Minister of Social Development has advanced a portfolio approach on how the department and its entities work, rightly so, and within the context of the bill, SASA and the NDA provide short-term relief and community development programs that can be funded uh, through these funds. The current fundraising act is outdated and not aligned with the Social Assistance Act. It is also in conflict with the Disaster Management Act of 2002, which sets out prescribed criteria for a person affected by a disaster. Thus, aligning the Fundraising Act with other legislation, which will not eliminate duplication, but also ensure family delivery of relief programs. The dissolution of the domain funds into a single fund under one board will only not unlock these monies, but will also eliminate the administrative and governance hurdles, ensuring efficient service delivery to the to the needy communities, especially in times of disasters. Uh, fragmentation has largely been a serious challenge that impacts upon effective and efficient implementation of policies and programs, not just in social development sector, but across government. This has resulted in implementation gaps that have at most times opened up for fraudulent activities. Wasteful use of resources, duplication of services, and a lot of frustration on the ground. It is in the interest of South Africans that government deal with fragmentation and working in, 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 in circles as they hinder seamless service delivery. As a country, we should be proud of the interconnected interconnected and interest that actors uh, across sectors have for the most part shown commitment to making a difference in the country. Through multiple efforts towards ending inequality, poverty and unemployment is such a strategic and multiple sectoral approach to dealing with the bill. At hand is non-negotiable. It, however, remains critical that this approach is one that is adequately governed by existing framework that uh, are anchored on principles of ensuring that transparent, accountable and ethical governance principles prevail towards the development and strengthening efforts towards a better life 
for all. Thank you very much. Thank you, Honorable Member. Honorable Abra. The Honorable Abrams. No, you're welcome. Thank you, House Chairperson. The fundraising amendment bill stems from a 2011 assessment by the Auditor General that it could not evaluate the following funds, the Refugee Relief Fund, the Social Relief Fund, and the state president funds due to all the accounts being dormant and recommended a legislative process to amend the act. It is unthinkable that these funds that were created to ease the burden of vulnerable citizens during the time of crisis were allowed to go dormant in the first place. Eleven years later, and Parliament is in the final stages of processing this amendment bill, which will see dormant funds as well as the Disaster Relief Fund dissolved with their boards and provide for the establishment of the Disaster Relief and National Social Development Fund. The intention of the bill will focus on proactive mitigation of disasters and promote the social development of communities. The consolidated fund will streamline the administrative processes and enable efficient services to poor communities and reduce costs. The majority of the amendments were technically technical changes and to align with supporting pieces of legislation such as the Disaster Management Act. Under Clause 2, the DA successfully ensured the proposed inflated board of 15 members be reduced to 10. Interesting, this was agreed upon at our committee meeting, but somehow the board was re-inflated to 15 during our last presentation. We are aware that for some ANC cadres and comrades, being a board member is a lucrative side hustle. Under Clause 4, the DA successfully included the phrase, within reasonable time for the disbursement of funds and in line with Section 50 of the PFMA. We have all borne witness to the slow rollout of food, water and sanitation to the KZN flood victims who still languish in halls while reports of misused funds and donations make news headlines. While the legislation is sound and the DA supports it, the pending regulations and implementation of the fund under ANC government is a different story. Many are wondering, will this be the COVID-19 Solidarity Fund 2.0? The truth of the matter, Chairperson, is that the ANC simply cannot be trusted with taxpayers' money. The truth, Chairperson, is that in a time of disaster, the ANC cannot be trusted to do what is morally and ethically right. It is the politically connected first and the destitute of Africans last. Chairperson, as a country, we will have many more disasters, be it natural due to climate change, man-made or ANC disasters. Currently, South Africa is a disaster. It is a disaster as a result of 28 years of at the mercy of a government that has no idea how to put South Africans first, a government that collapses everything it touches and wholly incapable of building anything new. The questions that Africans must ask themselves, who do they want leading during a time of disaster? Whom do they want leading during a time of a drought? A DA government who has proven to build world-class desalination plants and defeat day zero, or an ANC government who can't even fix a leak and commandeer water tankers. In times of wildfire, a DA government with a fleet of state-of-the-art fire trucks, or an ANC government with a one fire truck is stuck in the, in the repair garage. In the time of the next health pandemic, the DA's Zanzani Universal Healthcare Plan and a Hospital of Hope, 
or the ANC's NHI, which will only further decimate a public health care system already on its knees. In times of poverty, hunger and mass unemployment, a DA government which has offered realistic and workable solutions to the current government or the ANC who are too ignorant and narcissistic to accept the help. A South African president who is in the trenches with you, who will provide with confidence the reassurance the Africans will need, who had the foresight to warn us all of the dire impact Russia's invasion of Ukraine will have, such as DA leader John Stiernazen, or the complacent billionaire president who has effectively led our country to the edge of a cliff, knowing he has got the only parachute and will be cushioned by the millions of dollars in his landing. Chairperson, the year is 2022, and South Africa is a disaster, but it does not have to be. It is time to separate emotional, emotional nostalgia from the cold reality that forces Africa to strive, strive. We must take immediate emergency action, because in truth, Chairperson, the ANC is the disaster, not South Africa and the patriotic citizens who call it home. I thank you. Thank you, Honourable Member. Uh, the Honourable Aris. Thank you, Chip uh, Chipperson. Um, Marie will take it on behalf of Addis. Honorable Chipperson, the Economic Freedom Fighters reject the fundraising amendment bill in its current form as tabled by the Minister of Social Development and processed by the Portfolio Committee of Social Development. The bill seeks to consolidate three important relief funds that are currently administered separately. The bill seeks to consolidate the Catastrophic Disaster Relief Fund, the State President's Fund, and the Aid for Refugees Fund. All these funds exist as immediate relief for our people, in particular, the underprivileged and the victims of disaster and terrorist attack. We reject the bill because of fear that the corrupt ANC government will use these funds to loot state resources and fundraise for the 2024 elections. We are, we, were, we are told that the bill will make it easy to streamline all funds. In reality, it is the ANC, it is that the ANC failed to steal the money because each fund has specific intent purposes. The, the state president's fund has more than 40 million non-active fund, while there are families and children that go to sleep with empty stomachs. The social relief fund has more than 39 million money that can be used to fight scourge of gender-based violence in our communities. These funds have been neglected, and we know that the money will be stolen. We know that even Mr. Mr. Cyril Ramaphosa is clueless that these funds, because he went and established Solidarity Fund for COVID-19 relief that was managed like a private trust fund and did not account to anyone when there was in, they were, they, when there were enough funding vehicles. South Africa has so many refugees that all over the world, but the aid for refugees fund is still not assigned to not one single person. Over time, the bill has... But you can't even read English. Honorable April, please. Don't do that. Don't do that. Okay, other honorable members. Sort of that, honorable member. Go ahead, honorable. Over time, the bill has just generated, and now it is clear that the purpose is not intended to support our people, 
The ruling class does not care about victims of disaster. We have floods in KZN, Eastern Cape, and we, are still, we still have families struggling to feed their families. The victims of the dam collapse in the Free State in Jagersfustein are still waiting for assistance. We are still waiting for the stimulus packages payout intended for ECDs that were promised more than a year ago. The plan to create one fund with full-time board members who will be deployed from the Natuli House to address these funds to address salary problems. Soon, Natuli House workers will be paid their salaries as victims and beneficiaries of one of these funds. While we acknowledge that these, that they are in need for a relief fund, South Africa needs much more permanent solutions as many of the challenges are because of the mismanagement of the economy. Our people need land, need the suitable jobs, need participation in the economy as productive members of society. Today, our people are permanent victims of unemployment, victims of poverty, victims of landlessness. The time has come for us to do complete overhaul of the social safety legislation that is not driven by greed and corruption, nor new liberalism policies of the National Treasury. The EFF rejects the fundraising bill. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Honorable Member. The, honor, the Honorable Alfonso Marwe. Thank you very much, Honorable House Chairperson. Honorable House Chairperson, if one is to contemplate the intended purpose of the fundraising amendment bill before us, all seems above board. The amendments seek to consolidate the Disaster Relief Fund, the Refugee Relief Fund, the Social Relief Fund, and the State President's Fund into a single Disaster Relief and National Social Development Fund. The amendments will lead to one board, centralised decision-making, and so this will cut costs. We, of course, welcome that. However, the distributing vehicle of these funds will be the ANC-led government, and that is where the real problem arises. It is a fact that our government does not have a good track record with regards to distributing funds to the poor. Let's just look at recent examples. Millions, including food parcels meant for the poor, were stolen during our COVID-19 pandemic, during our response to the failed KZN insurrection, as well as during our uh, flood relief efforts. Aid meant for the most vulnerable of our citizens ended up in the pockets of unscrupulous officials and politicians. So this begs the question, will this fund suffer a similar fate? Will this be another piggy bank for the ruling elite? Also of concern is the fact that it will be the minister who gets to decide who gets funds, when, where, and how. Additional powers have been granted to that. A board must ensure the disbursement of funds or provision of assistance is done in accordance with any written directions of the minister. Let me remind all of us that millions are at stake here. Once all the funds are consolidated into this single fund, there will be just over 100 million available for distribution. And who will carry the responsibility for safeguarding this money? Well, according to the proposed amendments, the fund is subject to directions of the minister and under the control of the director general, who is the accounting officer of the fund. It is our view that this fund should not have been administered by officials, but it should have been administered by an independent party or body. We hold this view because the 2024 elections are just around the corner. And it is our fear that the ruling party might therefore divert funds or resources towards campaign activities, 
as it's done before, and as it fears losing grip on power in 2024. Or there's the very real possibility that these funds might be held back and then distributed prior to the elections. Even worse, these funds might simply just disappear. Honourable Minister, as we're speaking about interventions to protect the most vulnerable today, I would like to digress just a little and make this sincere appeal to you today. Please release some of these funds urgently to address the child malnutrition crisis. It is a disaster on its own. Another disaster we face is the disaster with regards to our social workers. Please, could you come back in the fourth term and table a plan of action to Parliament to ensure that we absorb all social workers that remain unemployed? And please, can you make sure that your department solves the issue with regards to the payment or late payment or non-payment of NGOs who provide vital services on behalf of the most vulnerable in our society? Chairperson, the IFP will be keeping a close watch on these funds and how it's spent, and we will demand accountability on behalf of the most vulnerable. For it is time to stop paying lip service to the needs of poor, the poor and marginalized by those in power. Every cent must be spent on putting vulnerable South Africans first. The IFP continues to do so in every municipality and all of the 29 municipalities that we govern in KwaZulu-Natal. The IFP will abstain from voting. Thank you. Thank you very much, Honourable Member. The Honourable Vassals. Thank you, House Chairperson. House Chair, this fundraising act is a dated piece of legislation from 1978. It had been largely replaced by the Non-Profit Organization Act of 1997. As much of the disaster management work of the Department of Social Development is being rendered by the NPO sector. The implementation of this act had faced challenges as some of the funds within the act have become dormant. Jefferson, furthermore, this fund was not allowing for timeliest response to disasters, as well as the funds that are dormant are largely difficult to access in cases of emergencies. The committee went out on public comment with this amendment bill, but only received a single input from the Western Cape government. Largely, the amendments are of a technical nature and set to clarify and align the bill with existing legislation. It has thus been long overdue for an amendment. All in all, these amendments are set out with the best of intentions and ideologies to improve the manner in which funds for disaster and social relief are dispersed. We should take into account the probable mismanagement, fraud and corruption of these funds. And this is where a number of concerns arise. Clause 4 sets to amend Section 20 of the Principal Act in order to empower the Minister to give directions to a board in respect of disbursement of funds and to ensure that a board acts in line with Section 50 of the Public Finance Management Act. Clause 8 seeks to amend Section 36 of the Principal Act in order to further provide for the making of regulations. 
these might have noble intentions and the work done to make this act streamlined to modern times and current legislation is commendable. But centralization is always problematic. In other departments such as agriculture and labor, we see daily the dire implications when a minister is given sole power. With great power comes great responsibility, but also ultimate power corrupts ultimately. Whether the intention of the bill and what is implemented will align remains to be seen. There is no fund, Chairperson, that the ANC has touched or managed that has not been looted. Legislation can be perfect, but with a corrupt to the core, power-hungry government, the most vulnerable will continue to suffer. And the much-needed disaster management and disaster relief will still be wanted. The FF Plus will support the bill. I thank you. Thank you very much, Honourable Member. The Honourable Sukert. Honourable Chairperson, the ACDP notes the submissions by the Department on the need for the amendment to the Fundraising Act number 107 of 1978 which provided control of collections and contributions from the public and that governs the five funds in existence to assist in cases of disaster. The department in its submission states that the amendment would remove duplication, streamline responses to disaster and ensure risk mitigation and the development of risk mitigating strategies. The latter we trust will mean that preventative strategies will be on top of the list to deal with the ongoing and costly fires in our informal settlements and tragedies that happen in communities in high-risk flood areas. The ACDP supports the need for the alignment of legislation that will allow clear legal perimeters to respond to disaster of whatever kind, timeously and effectively. We support the amendment, but with great caution and reservations. Due to the tragic tale of blatant thievery, even in the face of the worst humanitarian crises, and we have stories aplenty of where as a nation, we had to with disgust learn that those in power can steal at a grand scale, even in the face of death and misery. The disaster of the COVID response, the floods in KZN, the unrest in KZN gives credence to the need to improve the legislation to improve the legislation that will define who must respond, what measures must be developed, and how the response will be activated and rolled out to ensure an effective response to bring relief and ensure communities are being assisted in the long term. Thus, we want to echo the need for an independent body as was suggested earlier by the Honourable Member um, Liesel van Amerwe to administer this fund and the committee's inputs on the regulations that must be developed to set perimeters and it must be done with wide consultation. The recruitment of the board must be done in consultation if it happens with the committee and not form part of a supply chain of jobs for the politically connected or as a political tool. 
the Disaster Relief and National Social Development Fund cannot become a slush fund. Lastly, it would have been preferable for the committee to have a role in the recruitment and selection of the board. This is perhaps something the National Council of Provinces should look into. We support the bill. Thank you. Thank you very much, Honorable Member. The Honorable Kwankwa. ATM. No, we support the bill, Chair. Okay, thank you, Honorable Kwanga. I'm going straight to the Honorable Masango. Honorable Chairperson, the objectives of this amendment bill serves to highlight the many lessons COVID-19 taught us as a country. The first of which is the existence of laws not necessarily translating into smooth implementation. We are therefore mindful of the potential of this amendment bill becoming law and still not making the situation of those it is meant to serve any better. The logic of consolidating the various funds into one to expedite channeling the resources during disasters is not in dispute. And the Democratic Alliance is in total agreement with this move. The, de the Department of Social Development should and ought to have learned many more lessons during COVID-19, the recent floods and looting. Such lessons include ensuring the speedy coordination is undertaken to ensure the vulnerabilities primarily of children are not sacrificed at the altar of red tape, lack of capacity and working in silos, as was the case in many instances during recent disasters when money was just desperately needed and could not be accessed because it was locked in dormant disaster relief funds. The other heart-wrenching lesson learned was a critical need for DSD to work closely with and not against NPOs who have been doing this work for years. A collaborative working relationship between the department and NPOs would have prevented the painful sins of people queuing for food. The committee report on this bill aptly em emphasizes this point. A and I quote, a lot of, of the work the Department of Social Development did to support the disasters was largely done through NPOs. I want to add that the NPOs not only used to do a great chunk of the work of the department, but still continue to do it to this day. We are also reminded to ensure coordination among all spheres of government to avoid the horrific reports of ill treatment or channeling of much needed resources based on political affiliation and fragmentation of processes to access food by many deserving individuals and families. We call on the minister and the department to have processes in place that expedite the fast tracking of resources to the poor and vulnerable instead of erecting of barriers that block them. That would make a world of difference to those whose hope for survival during disasters is the protection provided by the constitution and the laws that emanate from it. As a caring party, the Democratic Alliance has learned these lessons and has submitted solutions to government. Most importantly, Chairperson, the Democratic Alliance will put them to good use when we take over government in 2024. Thank you, Honorable Member. That is a big dream. The Honorable Bilankulu. 
Enak Eh, Chaperson. Nah, ma Afrika zonga ingwen. Mweni sungula ni samula shivula burilesha kuhetelele. Akuna nchumushi ichabisa kutani African National Congress. Uya ilesi inga endla suna kusukela hii 1994. Ba akati kubashu ku African National Congress. I organize a movement uri woshe. Longa bateka kuhuwa susa kungwani uba isa kungwani. Se imiloro le DA yibo lavula kuyon. Mwani telani mizela ku. African National Congress, London Kaindule, yite kwa kufana na Chepis. Chepis loko yisungla kuyidia, ya nyanganya. Ungwana ungwana wa iranda kuyidia. Maro loko wa eta kuyidia, wa ichukumeta. I ANC yirioshe, yingata miruwalela. Yimi endelele simfane ku endelele wa soa. Asi isamaris loko wangwani miriku aleni. Kumbe mkari nkwa yiminga opozi. Yuku andeni katimbilu tangwina mihaba kunavela. Nakubona ba akatiko ba Afrika zonga ba tubuki. Hiyo maka hiri African National Congress. Aminge hii endi nchumu ami ichavisi. Itayama kweni itirela ba aki. ANC aimali. Loka yoba mali. Aita randi wa imunu uwana uwana. Se yuku aimali. Mifane kuyubula vula minda leshumila minda kusona. Mara asinge hii di focus as the ANC. Itayama kweni itirela ba aki. Kuya ilesi ilaba kuendasona. Bile ayotanzena. Yitela kutabona ku ilaba kuantisa. Uto mibzaba aki. Chairperson. Social, social compact. Contest of the bill being in line. With the idea of a social compact. Towards economic growth and development. The sixth national administration. Has since the beginning of the term. Made emphasis on the importance of in anchoring government interventions on a social compact framework that will see to it that efforts made towards building a non-racial, democratic, and prosperous South Africa are inclusive of different stakeholders in our society. The work of the national government, as led by the President Ramaphosa, has prioritized the consolidation of social compact framework to deal with the triple challenges of inequality, poverty, and unemployment that continue to plague the nation and pose a significant challenge to the gains of the democracy. One of the main goals of the Department of Social Development is to deal with inequality, poverty, and where possible provide opportunities through the social grants, such as the social relief of distress. We are aware of the impact that the SRD grant has had in changing the lives of many South Africans who are at the economic periphery. And notably in the current economic climate are completely reliant on the assistance of government for their livelihood. Given that one of the objectives of the Department of Social Development is also to create a caring and self-reliant society, it is important to ensure that measures are put in place to improve and strengthen social welfare services for the betterment of all South Africans, especially the poor, the marginalized and working class population of our country. And doing the legacy of apartheid through strengthening the developmental agenda and marginalized community. Chairperson, in order to do this, it will be critical that we address the scathing legacy of apartheid uh, and how it has been shaped the vulnerable of many South Africans. 
This vulnerability is still prevalent in many communities in rural areas and townships where the majority of African people continue to live. The fundraising bill under debate is a response to the limitations in the Fundraising Act 107 of 1978, which was adopted and used as a means of alleviating the impact of disaster of white South Africans at that time. Given the reality, the democratic government was responsible for exploring various avenues to provide social support for all vulnerable South Africans in the context of a disaster. It is this understanding that has contributed to the foregrounding of this debate in Parliament. In pursuit of the National Democratic Society, it is important that the historical reality that is underscored by inequality on the basis of race, class and sex be used as the basis for spearheading policy and legislation that in the main serves the interests of all South Africans. With a specific bias towards the working class, it is imperative, therefore, that we are cautious, we are cautious and learn from our past and be inter- intentional about undoing the persistent injustice of apartheid. A socioeconomic impact assessment conducted in 2019 on the impact that the amendment of the fundraising bill will have highlighted the importance of a commitment to dealing with the remnants of apartheid's illusion of Africans from benefiting from the state by factoring in the necessity for broader development interventions in rural and underdevelopment communities. A perspective that is supported by the department approach to ensuring the social services provided can create a platform for creating for creating sustainable sustainable and self-reliant communities. The successful building self-reliant communities through government support will reach its best potential through integrated efforts between the public, private sectors, and civil community engagement. The prospect for triple peace and strengthened stakeholders' relation with NGOs and other community organizations or CDPs already working in development space. Chairperson, following the narrative of strengthening efforts towards a social compact which involves the participation of the various sectors towards bringing about the development we need in the country, it is imperative that private-public partnerships are fostered. Acknowledging that while some of the interventions by government are confronted by limitation, the public perspectives that may suggest in inadequacy, the Department of Social Development has over the years worked with various non-government organizations that have contributed to the development agenda of the nation. In this regard, it is important that the amendment process of the bill that efforts made by the civil society and NGO space be enhanced in order to advanced developmental interventions in line with the broader objectives of the bill. The amendment of the Fundraising Act through establishing a national social development and relief fund is important in that it will provide a framework for government to expand its capacity to raise funds from the public and private sector under one fund in order to assist organizations, bodies, and individuals to undertake social economic development activities through cooperatives. This, as such, create an opportunity for already existing community development practitioners to better inter- integrate e- and economically benefit from government-led intervention. The importance of disaster management 
awareness at a community level. It is important for economic sustainability to safeguard the interest of the cater of CDPs that exist in our communities as a way to nurture the already existing relationship between the department and communities through the various programs that addresses issues such as education and food security and nutrition as an administered, administered through departmental agencies. One of the issues that the context of COVID-19 emphasizes is the fragmentation of efforts between government and the organization that work in the sector. Disaster management awareness at community level is necessary as it will provide an understanding by communities of what support government provides in disaster context and also how community-led initiatives can also be aligned with that, with what the Department of Social Development seeks to do. Community remains the custodian and beneficiaries of the program of government. It is that important citizens of South Africans also understand the importance of the integration and the amendment of this bill thereof. It is our view as the ANC that the amendment of this bill is a vote for justice and a vote for a more equal society in the pursuit to deal with the stage of inability in the country. As the ANC, we support the bill. I thank you, Chair. Thank you very much, Honorable Member. Honorable Members, may I draw your attention, please? Please be aware that the taking of photos in the house is not allowed. So please refrain from doing that. It can happen in any other public place, but not in the house. Uh, thank you very much. The Honorable the Minister of Social Development. The Honorable the Minister of Social Development. Uh, she must have taken a health break. Uh, we will pass the minister. Uh, she was supposed to be on visual. I'll take the shadow minister, but I can't see him or her. Are there any objections to the bill being read a second time? No objections agreed to. The secretary will read the bill a second time. Fundraising amendment bill. The bill will be sent to the National Council of Provinces for concurrence. Uh, Chairperson, I, I've been trying to get through, but not. Its ministers will be speaking. Thank, th- thank you. Thank you, Malandela. What was that? What was that? What was that? Yes. Honorable Minister, we have we have we have passed that one. Uh 
I did call you, but you were not there, unfortunately. I, I am here, you Jefferson. Might have had I've been problems. here. Thank you very much. Uh, the secretary will read the fourth order. Consideration of report of Portfolio Committee on Public Works and Infrastructure on Expropriation Bill. I now recognize the Honorable the Chief Whip of the Majority Party. Thank you, Honorable Chair. I move that the House uh, adopt the report. Thank you so much. The motion is that the report be adopted. Are there any objections? Is Chairperson, please note the objection of the AFIF Plus. Noted. No further objections. Chairperson. Yeah, but Honorable Chief Sorry, Chair. Please note the objection of the IFP. Noted. No further objections. No objections. Agreed to. Uh, the Secretary will read the last order of the day. Second reading debate, expropriation bill. The Honorable the Minister of Public Works and Infrastructure. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Honourable. Thank you, Honourable Chairperson. Thank much you, Honourable Members. Much has been said about the expropriation bill, and there has been a process over many years, including widespread public consultation, to get to this point where we are today, the latest version before Parliament for debate. The expropriation bill has been drafted by the Department of Public Works and Infrastructure after extensive consultation and with the assistance of senior counsel and constitutional experts. Expropriation is not unique to South Africa. The ability of governments to acquire or expropriate land for the public good is something that is found worldwide. These powers are given different names in different places. In the United States of America, the term is used, used as imminent domain. And India and Singapore is referred to as land acquisition. In the UK, New Zealand and Ireland, it's called compulsory purchase. And in Canada, Russia, Brazil, and most of Western Europe, these powers are referred to as expropriation. The expropriation bill is intended to replace the current uh, and apartheid era law uh, of 1975. The 1975 Act is inconsistent with the Constitution in many respects, and the current bill proposes to bring the law in line with the Constitution. With the Constitution as the highest law in our country, all our legislation as a constitutional democracy must be in line with the rule of law and above all, they should pass constitutional muster. Section uh, 25.1 of the Constitution states, 
that no one may be deprived of property except in terms of law of general application. And no law may permit arbitrary deprivation of property. The bill is a framework legislation that spells out clearly how and when expropriation can take place and by all expropriation authorities. The expropriation bill makes explicit what is implicit in the Constitution. Expropriation of property with no compensation is not a silver bullet. Expropriation is only one acquisition mechanism that in appropriate cases for public interest will enable land reform and redress. Clauses 1, uh, 12, 3, and 4 deals with the instances where it may be just and equitable to, pull, to pay no compensation for expropriation of property in the public interest. And the bill also outlines circumstances when it may be just and equitable for no compensation to be paid. The bill does not prescribe no compensation will be paid in these circumstances. Section 25, a solid, clear foundation for the implementation of Section 25.2 of the Constitution say property may be expropriated only in terms of a law of general application for public purposes or in the public interest subject to compensation, the amount of which and the time and manner of payment of which have either been agreed to by those affected or decided or approved by a court of law. Yet the Constitution is very clear on why property may be expropriated and that the compensation will be determined by agreement between parties and in the absence of an agreement, the landowner can uh, um, can approach the courts. Our retired constitutional deputy chief justice, the Khan Moseneke, said, and I quote, our constitutional democracy was forged on the anvil of division, past injustice and economic inequity, but also on the hope of reconciliation, nation building and social cohesion. It envisions the restitution of land to victims of dispossession, but does not permit arbitrary deprivation of property. It permits expropriation and redistribution of land for public good, provided that it's against just and equitable compensation, end quote. This bill brings certainty to South Africans and investors because it clearly outlines how expropriation can be done and on what basis? So it is extremely dangerous to suggest that government will arbitrarily take people's property, such as their homes. Speaker, land is an emotive issue. Across the country, there's still great pain being felt by many of our people of color who were stripped of their homes and denied the right to own property under the apartheid regime. What is wrong? is to instill fear-mongering, distorts the facts in a debate about land, and this is done all too often. Many times, those against the expropriation bill have been people who were never subjected to laws 
that strip people of their property, their dignity, and their rights to own property. These, these commentators have insinuated... Thank you very much. Thank you. The time is up. Yeah. Order, honorable members. Oh. The honorable Tobangwana. Thank you, Chair. Honorable Chaperson, Honorable Minister Dillin, Honorable Deputy Minister Kivit, Honorable Members of the Portfolio Committee, Honorable Members in the House, uh, fellow South Africans, Moleni Bolukhaja. Most challenges related to unemployment, poverty, and inequalities faced by Africans in particular and Black in general can be traced back to land disposition a brutal, merciless activity that made South African natives not actually slaves, but pariahs in the land of their birth, as said by the first Secretary General of the African National Congress, Comrade Sol Parti. Honorable Chaperson, the amendment of the Expropriation Act Number no. 63 of 1975, an apartheid piece of legislation, will ensure consistency, alignment, with the spirit and provisions found in the Constitution of the Republic of South Africa. The object of the Expropriation Act of 1975 was to provide for the expropriation of land and other property for public and certain other purposes. This expropriation bill we're bringing to the House today will amend that Expropriation Act. The Expropriation Bill is often conflated with the process that the parliament undertook in 2018 of seeking an amendment of section 25 of the constitution. That is not the case. This is a different process and it relates to the law of general application that puts in place enabling legislation in line with the constitutional prescripts that allowed for the expropriation of property for public purpose and public interest. The expropriation bill was first introduced in Parliament in 2008 and an important bill that would ensure the acceleration of our land reform and infrastructure development programs. This bill, number 23 of 2020, is a bill affecting the provinces and is tagged by the Parliament as Section 76 bill. This bill, after its passing by the National Assembly, will be referred to the National Council of Provinces for concurrences. This bill will provide for our government to address the land question in South Africa and use that to bring the dignity of those whose land was repossessed. As I said earlier, the bill will repeal Expropriation Act Number no. 63 of 1975 and will provide legislative framework where expropriation of property takes place in a just and equitable manner. It puts down the legal frame to do what the Constitution says. Expropriation must be done in a proper administrative way to ensure just and equitable compensation. And in some cases, nil compensation may be considered just and equitable. This is in line with the provisions found in Section 25, Subsection 2, and Subsection 3 of the Constitution. Section 25, Subsection 1 of the Constitution 
states that no one may be deprived of property except in terms of law gen- of general application and no law may permit arbitrary deprivation of property. And this is what this bill is all about. This bill makes certain that all instances where expropriation is to be done, it will be done in lawful, reasonable, procedural, fair manner, even when it is done with nil compensation, it will be done as per the constitution, where assessment, proper notice, allowing appeals of all affected parties will be done. The apartheid era expropriation act of 1975 is not aligned to our constitution. And this bill makes sure that the way in which we deal with land fits this democracy that so many people fought for and lost their land, property, rights, and lives. With this bill, we are taking back legally, correctly, and respectful as per the ethos and provisions of the constitution, what was taken unlegally without respecting even the dignity and the rights of those that were affected by the Expropriation Act of 1975. The Constitution of the Republic provides for public participation in legislative making and portfolio committee commenced with the public hearings of the bill in March 2021 with written and oral submission received, notwithstanding the constraints imposed by the COVID-19, the committee was able to successfully meet and listen to people in public hearings in all the nine provinces. Further submissions by stakeholders were also accommodated as some of them sought to make inputs on the expropriation bill before the committee. When more people came forward and requested to make presentation, a second round of parliamentary hearings was undertaken. Various stakeholders who had made submissions and participated in the public hearings made important inputs which shaped the engagement in the committee and the final product before the House. The committee deliberated on the bill clause by clause, and this was taking into consideration the submissions that were received from the public citizen. This enabled corrections and amendments in the portfolio committee to be made to the bill. As the the committee would like to thank the members of the public, various organized community groups, civil organizations, academics, political parties, and traditional council, their contribution was invaluable. Their inputs had assisted the committee to produce B23B of 2022 version that will place before this house. As I said earlier, there is a need for this bill to lay proper foundation so that the correction of historical injustice can take place. This bill is a part of that foundation as amongst others. It provides expropriation of land for labor tenants on farms who have been historical disposers. The Minister of Agriculture may also apply for land expropriation in the public interest or for infrastructure development. However, it only provides as a foundation for such corrections of injustice that took place in the past. The bill is not specifically land reform legislation as it is based on expropriation for the public interest and public purpose. The bill provides for other government departments to apply for expropriation of land for public purposes through the minister 
and executing authority as this needs to occur with the motivation and in the public interest. There are currently at least seven government departments, local municipalities, provinces, and state-owned entities with expropriating powers in terms of the 1975 Expropriation Act. This bill allows the expropriation of land and or property on an agent basis, and this is done in the public interest, and the state can withdraw the notice of expropriation when such a need arises. Given the fact that the procedures and processes to be followed when dealing with the cases of expropriation is stipulated in the bill and enshrined in the Constitution and makes no room for arbitrary expropriation of land and deprivation of land on arbitrary conditions. The committee is of the view that this is a progressive bill, not only as much as it aligns with principles of our democratic constitution, but again, as it intends on redistributing land to address the national grievance on the land question brought about by the forced disposition of land, provision for the legal processes and procedures for appropriation of land and property by organs of state, as set out in Clause 12 of the bill, allows for the determination of nil compensation as just and equitable compensation in conjunct with the provision of Section 25, Subsection 2 of the Constitution of the country. To illustrate the progressive nature of the bill, an instance where there is a consideration for determination of, of compensation in terms of Section 23 of the Labor Tenants Act, the court may find that it may be just and equitable for no compensation to be paid, having regard to all circumstances. The report notes the objections to the bill by some members of the committee and thus indicates that the progressive provisions of the bill makes provisions for the aggrieved party to approach court as a final arbitrator in instance of disputes and disagreements over the Expropriation Act by the expropriating authority. The Land Court Bill, once finalized by our sister portfolio committee on justice and correctional services and passed by this parliament, will deal with land claims and expropriation which are in the public interest and for public purpose. The bill notes that under international law, there is a principle for compensation which is associated with cases of expropriation and also nil compensation in certain instances. The issue of nil compensation was not brought in through the back door as some members of the opposition so incorrectly imply but was brought through the front door as it was always a part of deliberations of the bill from the first day. Nil compensation is part of our international trade agreements and is part of international economic agreements and is internationally recognized. Let me repeat. Nil compensation is part of our international trade agreements, part of international economic agreements, and is internationally recognized. The committee is convinced that the bill with its amendments was properly crafted within our constitutional framework. We have received legal opinion from the department uh, legal team, state law advisor, the parliamentary legal services, and the committee are all the view that the bill passes the constitutional master 
there is no need for panic among members of the opposition and on the constitutionality of the bill. In conclusion, Honorable Chairperson, the committee recommends the passing of this bill with amendments made to it by the House and referral to the NCOP for concurrence. Diabulela, Ngos. Thank you, Honorable Member. <clears throat> the Honorable Brian. Thank you, thank you, House Chair. Expropriation of property for a public purpose is not a new concept in South African law. In fact, the bill under discussion today seeks to repeal an existing piece of legislation that deals with expropriation of property, namely the Expropriation Act 63 of 1975. The Expropriation Bill 2020 has been drafted with a view to aligning expropriation by the state with the Constitution. What is new in our law is the concept of public interest as a basis for the expropriation of property. Public interest relates to our commitment as a country to bring about redress for past injustices through mechanisms such as land reform. As we know, Parliament failed to pass an amendment to Section 25 of the Constitution last year, which would have entrenched expropriation without compensation in the property clause. In spite of this, the ANC have insisted that the exact clause that they failed to pass be retained in the expropriation bill. It is our contention that this is a brazen attempt by the governing party to amend the constitution through the back door using ordinary legislation. It cannot be countenanced that a clause that was deemed so pivotal as to require a constitutional amendment should now just be adopted in the House by a simple majority. Section 25.2 of the Constitution stipulates that expropriation must be subject to compensation that has been agreed to or has been decided on by the court. Section 12.3 of the Expropriation Bill before this House clearly contravenes this by providing specific instances where no compensation is already deemed to be just and equitable. No consensus, no court determination. Our proposed amendment to Section 12.3 of the Expropriation Bill stipulates that null compensation should only be the starting point in two instances, where land is owned by the state and is no longer needed by that department, and where state property that was previously expropriated and paid for is needed for another purpose. Expropriation without compensation should never be the basis for the commencement of negotiations between the state and private property owners. It places the state in a position of greater strength than the private property owner, which is contrary to the foundations of a constitutional democracy. In his book, Land Matters, advocate Tembeka Ntukatobi states that just compensation, which has not been defined, is based on the idea of justice. Expropriation in the public interest is not intended to cause further injustices, but rather to reverse past injustices. He states further that the focus should be on striking the proper equilibrium between the interests of the nation in land reform, the landless, and those who must ultimately give up the land. The expropriation before us, with the inclusion of the current clause 12.3, is not a tool for land reform, but rather a mechanism for punishing private property owners using arbitrary criteria that are not easily measurable nor address historical spatial disadvantage. The Democratic Alliance has further proposed an amendment to the definition of expropriation to include indirect expropriation. This includes custodianship of property as well as what is termed regulatory takings. 
In both instances, the state is entitled to take control of a person's property and limit the owner's rights to use and enjoy that property without paying any form of compensation. While ownership of the property is not transferred to the state, the extreme nature of the curtailment of rights in the property is nothing short of expropriation without compensation. For this reason, the inclusion of indirect expropriation in the definition of expropriation would afford some compensatory remedy to the owners of property who have been affected by the actions of the state. The ANC have used the expropriation bill to sell a lie to the people of South Africa. They have allowed our people to believe that the biggest obstacle to having their own property is the greediness of landowners demanding compensation. It is patently untrue. The biggest obstacle to land reform in this country is the governing party. There are a number of legislative mechanisms and tools available to ensure meaningful land reform. There is just no political will to implement them. Instead, the expropriation without compensation catchphrase has been used to cover the failure of the ANC to deliver on its promises and to create an illusion that property ownership for all is just one piece of legislation away. The expropriation bill is certainly one of the tools that can be used for land reform. However, its primary purpose is to allow government to expropriate property to further its own objectives. So while we do not want to stymie the state in pursuing its mandate, we must ensure that we protect private property rights against the potential abuse that this bill in its current form would lead to, particularly with respect to the inclusion of specific instances allowing for expropriation without compensation. The Democratic Alliance does not support this bill without our proposed amendments. I thank you. Thank you very much, Honorable Member. The Honorable Suiza. Thank you, Chairperson. Chairperson, we object to this hideous, regressive, and sellout piece of legislation. Over the past four years, we've initiated the process to amend the Constitution to permit expropriation of land without compensation. While we were busy with this constitutional amendment process, the Department of Public Works, now led by an expired Pan-Africanist, initiated this bill, thereby putting the cart before the horse. It was this bill that first came up with the intangible term of null compensation for expropriated land. The bill goes further and identifies categories of land that would be candidates for null compensation, and these are land that is not used for productive purposes, state-owned land, abandoned land, land that is worth nothing in the market, and land that poses health, physical, safety risks to society. Now, when we started this process, the chairperson of the committee indicated that the purpose of the bill was to resolve the land question in this country, to empower the state to expropriate land in order to give it to the natives whose land was taken by European settlers. Do natives in this country want land that is not used for productive purpose? Do they want state-owned land? Do they want abandoned land? Do they want land that is worth nothing or land that poses significant safety risks? If not, why is the ANC playing the worth people's emotions and claiming to be for expropriation of land without compensation when they want to expropriate, when they want to 
expropriate this land that is of little of, or no value at all to our people. The provisions of this bill are even more restrictive than the current section 25 subsection three of the constitution. The section outlines factors that must be taken into account when determining compensation for expropriated property. And these include the current use of the property, the history of acquisition of that property, the market value, the extent of direct state investment and the purpose for which the property is expropriated. These factors limiting as they are are more expensive than the provision of this bill. This bill would basically leave the almost 72% of the land owned by whites in the country untouched, and the government would still need to pay market value for expropriating white-owned land for land reform purposes. If in such cases, without an overarching constitutional provision for expropriation without compensation. These provisions would be subjected to endless court challenges, leaving the land reform program in disarray and it has been, as it has been over the 28 years of ANC misrule. What will resolve the present crisis of land in this country is a bold constitutional and legislative amendment that recognizes that the current state of the land ownership in this country is a result of colonialism and apartheid, and that the constitution itself must acknowledge this and make provision for expropriation of land from European settlers without compensation to be allocated to the natives for the productive use for housing and for cultural purposes. What this bill does is to basically take the 1975 Expropriation Act and merely align it with the Constitution. It will do nothing to help speed up the pace of land reform. It will not touch the sanctity in which private ownership of land by whites is held in this country. It is thus that has kept black people landless in this country. We reject this bill and call on our, upon our people to see the ANC for what it truly is, a staunch defender of interest of white landowners and an opponent of thoroughgoing land reform. I thank you, Chair. Thank you very much, Honorable Member. The Honorable Zonda from the IFP. Honorable Chairperson, on an outset, let, let me once again reiterate that the IFP is in full support of meaningful land reform in South Africa on the premises that such reform is just and equitable. However, after extensive deliberation in the portfolio committee, which include engagement with stakeholders, citizens, and civil society organizations to listen to formal presentation on specific clauses of the bill, we remain of the considered option that we cannot support the current form of expulsion bill. Our main concern relating to, to the introduction of the concepts of need compensation in the bill as a current phrase. Clause 12.3 of the bill only, not only provides an open-ended list of circumstances that may potentially justify the, 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 the determination of need compensation by expropriation authorities. But clause 12.3a, clause 12.3c, and clause 12.3e 
in specific are extremely vague and will not engage legal sensitivity. These clauses have not been amended to provide any further clarity. If the IFP reiterates that the clause 12.3a is extensively wide and, and the landowner who holds land for investment purposes may be specifically targeted. Clause 12.3c provides no objective element to determine when the landowner had abutted land, providing ample opportunity of this provision to be, to be abused. And clause 12.3e, relating to when the property poses a healthy and a safety or, or physical risk, is extensively or subjective. The IFP is the same verge. It does not support the clause 12.4 of the bill in relation to the determination of need compensation. Furthermore, clause, clause 15.3 provides that the declaration of the dispute will not prevent the passing of the position to the expropriation authority. And the clause 12, clause 19.8 provide an appeal against the court decision on the amount of compensation will not prevent the interdict. A highly prejudiced toward the expropriation owner or expropriated holder, considering the cost of the litigation and the fact that litigation is a land of procedure. The burden upon the landowner is further aspirated by the fact that the bill currently provides that position of the property passes to the expropriation authority on the future date stipulated in the, in the notice of the expropriation. Determining disputes have been declared. This must, be, this must be seen for what it is, a pure draft attempt by the ruling party to cover up its own adequately ineffective meaningful land reform in South Africa since assuming power in 1994. The IFP rejects the current form of situation bill. I thank you. Thank you very much, Honorable Member. The Honorable Jay Hunavalt. Geachte Voorzitter, this is a dishonest bill. Why do I say that? It starts on the preamble of this bill is referring to Section 25 of the Constitution. It wants to create the impression that the bill is in line with the Constitution. Now, I challenge the Honorable Minister. Honorable Minister, take this bill to the Constitutional Court. Take it for a test to ensure you're shaking your head. So can I accept that you will take it and refer it to the Constitutional Court? The Constitution provides that Parliament can, before promulgation, to be referred to the Constitutional Court. I challenge you to do that. Why do I say it's dishonest? Firstly, what are the pitfalls? Firstly, if we look at the definition of property, it must be clear to the people that property is not only limited to land. That means that movable property, intellectual property, is at stake. And that we actually say that the government has the power to expropriate those properties without compensation. I also further want to put it very clearly that land reform is not really the main issue for this bill 
from the governing party. It is about power. It is to get hold of land in South Africa. But what are the consequences? Besides unforeseen consequences, there are clear consequences. Firstly, who's going to pay the price? It is going to be the commercial banks. It's going to be financial institutions. In fact, it is going to be private owners of those properties. And it will also be those people who want to develop property in South Africa. They're going to pay the price. And what is the price going to be? The price is the destruction of the economy of South Africa. Because private ownership is one of the pillars of democracy and a free market economy. Ons is besig om daar die pilare te vernietig. Die gevolge gaan wees, dat daar gaan een voedsel tekort ontstaan. En mense se levenskostes gaan dan stuig as gevolg daarvan. Want die beleggers wat in Suid-Afrika wil kom belee, stel nie kom belee nie, want wie gaan belee as jy weet dat jou baatis eenvoudig onteien kan word sonder vergoeding. Dit gaan tot gevolg hee dat daar minder besighede gaan wees en dit gaan daartoe lei dat daar werksgeleendhede verloore sal gaan. So this bill will create more unemployment in South Africa, destroying the economy, and you know what? Who's going to pay the final price? The children and the future of this country. Hierdie wet hoort nie die onteiningswet bekend te staan nie. Dit moet bekend staan as die vernietigingswet, want dit is precies wat het gaan wees. Ek dank u. Thank you very much, Honorable Member. The Honorable Friend. Honorable House Chairperson, as we consider this amendment bill, the ACDP is cognizant of the need for legislation to deal with the expropriation of property for a public purpose or in the public interest. It must be remembered that an attempt was made by the ruling party to amend Section 25 of the Constitution of South Africa in order to provide for expropriation without compensation. The ACDP, along with most other opposition parties, voted against the proposed amendment as we believe that it was not necessary. Furthermore, we believe that amending Section 25 of the Constitution to provide for nil compensation would cause capital flight, impeding foreign and domestic investment. It is the view of the ACDP and many sober-minded South Africans that this bill is yet another attempt to provide for expropriation without compensation, particularly when one considers Section 12.3a, c, d, and e, which targets private property. These sections allow for no compensation on expropriation if the land is not being used 
or is kept to generate income from appreciation. If the land is considered abandoned, if the market value of the land is equivalent to or less than the present value of the direct state investment or subsidy, and when the nature or condition of the property poses health, safety, or physical risk to persons or other property. The ACDP cautions, as it did in the with the attempt to amend Section 25 of the Constitution, and that while acknowledging the need for reformation and restitution on the land question, that expropriation without compensation is not the panacea. Property rights must be protected because a failure to do so will destroy the value of that property. As in any business, if a property loses its value, it becomes non-tradable. And business will move to places where they can trade. The ACDP agrees with former President Khalima Mutlante when he said, if property is not protected by law, society as we understand it today will disappear because the kind of anarchy and chaos that will ensue will be difficult to imagine. One of your own. The ACDP believes that this bill in its current form is nothing more than a populist political tool to consolidate and hold on to power regardless of the consequences. We will not support it. Thank you. Thank you, Honorable Member. The Honorable Heron. Thank you, House Chair. Um, sorry, House Chair. House Chair, the, um, those who oppose the expropriation bill do, do so mostly from a, a historical perspective or an irrational misunderstanding of the current constitution. While this bill is not only about expropriation with nil compensation, those who have implemented the most horrific expropriations through forced removals and still execute expropriations where they govern have made this all about that. I can assist them with their ignorance and their fear if only they could try to identify as part of the South African solution and find a little bit of care. I could take them on a short trip, not 20 minutes from our parliament, to Langa and Yangol Gugs, to privately owned apartheid-era migrant labor hostels, where people are living in squalid conditions long since abandoned by their private landlords. Take the Cape Sun Hostel in Gugs, for example, a hostel named after the luxury Cape Sun Hotel because that is where those who built the hotel were permitted to stay. The developers of the hotel and the owners of the hostel have abandoned their tenants in a building where children are covered in sores because they are exposed to raw sewage floating in the courtyard. This is the legacy nil compensation should be used to address, the apartheid legacy that those who need to be dishonest in order to make an argument must confront. Colonial and apartheid land grabs grabs never reversed are a major contributing factor to the state of acute inequality in our land today. Historically excluded from land ownership, the vast majority of citizens remain excluded today because they can't afford the price of entering the property market. Their exclusion from the property market means they lack tangible assets to leverage cash from the financial sector, which leads to the economic exclusion. It's a cruel and vicious cycle. Expropriating land in appropriate circumstances is one of the tools at government's disposal to accelerate land reform, and this is not new. 
For the past 47 years, the state has been expropriating land under the 1975 Act. That is the Act which this bill seeks to update. Nor is expropriating land without compensation new. Section 25 of the Constitution provides for nil compensation in circumstances in which it is just and equitable. And that matter has been settled law for the past 20 years. In 2002, the Constitutional Court said that there are appropriate circumstances where it is permissible for legislation in the broader public interest to deprive persons of property without payment of compensation. The bill is not the loaded gun to chase landowners into the sea that the honorable members from the DA and the Freyers Front Plus projected to be. The campaign they launched against it during the public consultation process, warning that citizens stood to lose everything they own, including their cars, was dishonest and inflammatory. The truth is that the expropriation bill is not the panacea for all the honorable members. Please, down. You're drowning the speaker. Honourable members, please. May I continue, Chair? Continue, Honourable Herbert. Thank you. The truth is that the expropriation bill is not the panacea for all the ailments that afflict the land reform process in South Africa. That requires the relevant department to improve its performance. But the bill is a much-needed improvement on the 1975 Act. In fact, it provides for more protection of property rights than the current Act it will replace it's compliant with the progressive and constitute progressive constitution the constitution has always provided that no one thank may you. be deprived of property in terms of the law of general application and no law may permit arbitrary deprivation of property i thank you thank you the honorable Eklund. Thank you, House Chair. Land and property rights are a very emotive issue. They are the means by which a person is judged and the single most valuable measure and le- of the legacy one leaves one's children. Many in this House would have the South Africans believe that the Democratic Alliance is firmly against this expropriation bill 23 of 2020 because the DA doesn't want South Africans to own a piece of land of which they can prosper, become successful, or leave a lasting legacy for their children. They are wrong. That is exactly what the DA wants. We believe land reform is both a moral and a political imperative, but this bill is not going to guarantee that. The ANC has packaged this bill as the panacea to South Africa's land reform woes, selling it as a means by which South Africans will gain access to their own land, which the ANC will give them. This is not the case. The government has thousands of hectares of land, which it could make available tomorrow in both rural and urban settings, against which many land claims have been lodged but which the ANC government has failed to finalize or even address for over 20 years. These same South Africans have waited for years for additional schools, paved roads, and jobs, and they are now being hoodwinked into believing that this bill will solve all their problems. It's a shameless and bold-faced lie. Likewise, 
The EFF didn't support this bill in the public hearings. In public hearing after public hearing, their supporters told us... Order, order, honorable members. Honorable members. Honorable members. Do not drown the speaker, please. Go ahead, Honorable Hicklin. Thank you. We were merely told to amend Section 25 of the Constitution, and once amended, this bill would not be necessary. The amendment was not passed, and now this bill is the back door through which the expropriation of art without compensation will be will put the property into the hands of the state, not the people, the state. It's snake oil sells pitches at best. The DA supports a realistic approach to land reform, acknowledging the horrific injustices of the past, particularly how our history of racial dispossession has left the country on a skewed pattern of land ownership that has excluded the majority of South Africans from land assets and inclusion in rural economies. We want to create programs that effectively address the land needs of South Africans who have historically been excluded from land and property ownership and including the needs to access urban land and housing opportunities. The purpose of this expropriation bill Thank is not primarily Another land member. reform. None of this will be guaranteed by this bill. I thank you. The Honourable Mashele. Then African National Congress clarify some of the mistruth brought here. Let me assure the descendants of Jan van Riebeek that we are not going to behave like your great-grandfathers. We are a responsible government. We are the African National Congress. South Africa belongs to all those who live in it, black and white. House Chair, members of the executive, members of the Portfolio Committee on Public Works, honorable members of this house, fellow South Africans. We have listened uh, to the debate from the political parties that spoke today here. What then became important is that the expropriation bill should be adopted by this house as a matter of agents. We are meeting here Today, just two days after we celebrated the 86th birthday of Mayor Winima Dixela Mandela. Her contribution, her contribution to humanity is even known by those who plagiarize the history of this country. We all know that she loves South Africa and her people. In her memory and honor, we call on, on all progressive forces to, uh, to support this expropriation bill B23B of 2020. It is through this bill that the dignity of a black person will be restored. It is through this bill that the people of Winmandela in formal settlement in Tembisa will be restored to their dignity. Van Valley Pilgrim Rest, Nalesabi, Empumalang, RDP houses through this bill. This bill will make it easy for the Department of Health to build hospitals in places like Mabopane in Tswani. None of the opposing parties, none of the opposition parties 
laid claim that the process leading to the tabling of this bill did not meet nor satisfy the parliamentary requirements of this parliament. This bill was adopted by all members in the portfolio committee in, in seeking to build a non-racial, non-sexist, and a peaceful democratic South Africa. We have taken note that the flower of peace cannot be sustained in the midst of poverty and want. Poverty and want leads to great feeling of discomfort within society. It makes social cohesion almost impossible to achieve, which will lead to conflict. As a caring government of the ANC, we are going to avoid any conflicts in South Africa. We are going to marshal all South Africans towards a peace South Africa. It's against this background, I will share, that the House cannot be held at ransom Honorable, Honorable by those on my left. Honorable Mashala, there's a point of order called. What's your point of order, Honorable Member? You can Chair, take a seat. I, I think uh, House Chair Frolic is uh, disturbing the proceedings. He's unmuted. That's not a point of order, but I realize that. Honorable Mashala? The theoretical the theoretical objection to this bill by some opposition parties are deeply flawed. They are, inflawed, they are informed by fears which are unfounded, not supported by any empirical evidence. They are just an instrument to mobilize property owners and investors against transformation imperatives that the country is pursuing. The ANC-led government is committed to transformation and promotion of inclusivity. The diverse inputs from consultations across the country gave impetus to the objectives of ensuring that certain properties and land should be expropriated in the interest of our people. Fears that the expropriation bill will undermine property ownership must be rejected. Already Section 25 of the Constitution does provide for the expropriation of land without compensation in circumstances where a court can determine that such expropriation by the state for nil value is just and equitable. Therefore, expropriation bill will be applied within the ambit of the laws. The constitutionality of the bill is never in doubt. Obviously, wrong assumption that it is intended to weaken and undermine the rights of private property owners are just formulated to undermine the intentions of the bill. At least some opposition parties agree that we must build an inclusive society and free from... Free, free our people from the ravages of apartheid. This bill is an instrument to achieve such, and it must be supported by everyone in this house. As Parliament, it's our duty to pass legislation that will improve the quality of life of our people, unless they are, unless they are potential towards self-sustainable development. Our forebears imagine a democratic South Africa, which will vigorously tackle landlessness, inequality, and poverty. The expropriation bill seeks to readdress, rethink, reimagine, reposition South Africa and respond to the variety of challenges that our country faces. We cannot simply fold our arms as there is a need to introduce deliberate reforms through state interventions to bring about inclusivity in property and land ownership in South Africa. If we are to listen to the opposition party's house chair, will not move. Their argument seeks to create an impression that government wants to expropriate any property without compensation, which is completely incorrect. We cannot allow opposition rhetoric to hinder 
the ANC-led government mandate to, to build an inclusive society and implementing reforms. President Cyril Ramaphosa, when he was handing over title deeds in Franklin, in Cockstad, said the following, I quote, this handover is significant because it forms part of the work we are doing together to restore the dignity of South African people. From the wars of dispossession to the 1913 Land Act to the Group Areas Act and other apartheid legislation, black South Africans were denied the right to own property. President Ramaphosa went to say, since 1994, the ANC-led government has been working hard in correcting the historical injustice by providing houses to the poor people, land redistribution through provision of basic services. The expropriation bill will advance the work of the ANC-led government in tackling decisively the historical injustice disparities in property ownership in the country. We will pursue a comprehensive approach and not undermine investments and property rights of individuals. We urge all South Africans to join us in this journey to build a truly united and prosperous South Africa. House Chair Franz Fanon said, I quote, for colonized people, the most essential value because the most concrete is first and foremost the land and the land which brings them bread and above all dignity. The expropriation bill must not only be understood as an important process of restoring the dignity of the dispossessed because land is both bread and dignity. House Chair President Mandela once warned us, I quote, any man who changes his principles depending on who he's dealing with is not a man who can lead a nation. The instruction from President Mandela is is that we must side on the side of the truth at all costs. We must be on the side of the poor working class. We must be on the side of the poor people of Kennedy Road, informal settlement, and phonics in order, order, honorable members. Order. We, we must be on the side of the rural people of Guyana who wants government to build a university in their community. We must be on the side of the poor people of the 16 informal settlements here in Cape Town who cannot have access to houses because the DA-led government here cannot give them land to build houses. We must be on the side of the poor people of Johannesburg, Twane, and Jimmy Stain, who live in squatter camps. Those who oppose this bill should be unmasked for, for South Africa to know their real characters. During the day, they must parade as progressive forces while they are reactionary agents. They perfectly fit the description of the biblical Philistines. This political Judas in their red uniforms should be stopped from joining the duet from the their girlfriends. Order, has cha- on the point of order. What a contradiction. Uh, honorable order. Marshall, eh? the point not... of order. Honorable, honorable Marshall. Uh, the point of order, your seat, please? Honorable Marshall. Can you take your seat, please? What's your point of order, honorable member? House Chair. Honorable I members, can we... Parliamentary can for we... this member. Okay, to... honorable members, please. Go ahead, honorable member. I do not think it's parliamentary for this member to be referring to the members of this house as red Judas's Hawaiian. It is unparliamentary and he must withdraw. The... He must withdraw, Chair. Okay, so he must withdraw, Chair, or you will not speak. Thank Point of order. On- Honorable member, take your seat. Honorable members. 
honorable members. <laughs> can I, can I, can I refer you to, to Rule 84? Can I refer you to Rule 84? Rule 84 says no member may use offensive, abusive, insulting, disrespectful, unbecoming, or unparliamentary words or language. No offensive, unbecoming, or threatening gestures. So, Honorable Marcelle. In the context, in the context of what we have uttered, I think it was unparliamentary. Could you please withdraw it? What, what Honorable Marshall do now? Can you can you please withdraw that, Honorable Marshall? House Chair, I did not refer to anyone, but those that fits the description. Honorable Marshall, if you are not if you are not happy with my ruling, you know what steps to take. But at the moment, my ruling is that. Could you please withdraw that? It's South unparliamentary. Africa, I withdraw, Chair. South Africa is waiting for us to adopt. Thank the you very much. In the point of order, Chair. Honorable Chair, there's another point of order. Yes. Thank you so much, Chair. While we respect your ruling, I will also implore you to also go back to hindsight and look at it because that's a point of debate. That's one. Number two, Chair, I want to call point of order around the heckling. It is drowning the member. We need to protect the member because the other side is really drowning the member. Can you please do that? Be consistent. Thank you very much. Honorable members, the, the heckling the heckling in the house is indeed allowed, but it also has to be controlled in such a way that you, we don't drain, we don't, we don't drown the speaker. But I'll, I'll, I'll in the same breath request the whole house to observe that. All of us need to observe that. What a contradiction house said that they have not are singing from the same hymn book with the halves. South Africa must stop this unholy marriage of these ones because it's a disaster in waiting in South Africa. South Africans cannot be lampooned by these charlatans. We must stop these double-faced agents of darkness. We must stop these pickpocketers from peddling lies to the masses of our people. I would share, in conclusion, we support the expropriation bill. The African National Congress support the expropriation bill. Honorable members, could you please take your seats? Could you please take your seats? Honorable members. Honorable members. 
Honorable members from the ANC. Chair. Honorable members from the ANC. Your Chair. actions are disruptive. Chair. Your actions are disruptive. I definitely would expect much, much better from you than what you are doing. Chair, Chair. No, Chair, Chair. No, Chair. So it is totally unacceptable what you have just done. Chair, Chair, I've spoken with them. No, Chair, Chair. Don't worry. Honorable Kwankwa. I was going to ask you, Chair, to call the bouncers and eject these members from the house. Point of order. Who is talking? Point of order. Honorable, honorable members. Point of order. I can't even know. Who is talking? I, I was saying, Chair. I want to call Member Nkwangwa to order. Honorable Kwangwa. Okay, Honorable Papa. Honorable Kwangwa. I thought you didn't hear me, Chair. I, I did not hear you. Oh, you didn't hear me. Oh, no, I was making a humble request to you. Uh, can you please call the bouncers to evict all these members who are making a noise here because they're disrupting the proceedings? Okay, thank you, Honorable Pankwa. I've already, I've already given advice. I'll not do that, Honorable Papa. I want to call Member Kwangwa to order because he calls the Parliamentary Protection Services bouncers. Ah, uh, you're wasting our time now. Uh, and that's not, it's a, it's a demeaning term to use. Okay, okay, thank you, Honorable Member. I will, I will, I will, I will, Honorable Members, Honorable Members, please. Honorable Members, please. Hey, we are out of order. Honorable members, you are out of order, please. Thank you, honorable members. Uh, honorable Papa, on your on your concern, I will come back to you after having looked into what you're saying. I have noted what you're saying. We will look into that and come back to you about the word bouncer and its implications. I will definitely come back to you. Okay, that's your assertion, but let me let me look at it. I'll come back to you about it. Thank you very much. Honorable members. We still have a, we still have we still have a decorum of the house to observe. So let's continue with that. Uh, Chair, the honourable minister. Oh. And uh, I, I wanted to also to I wanted also to warn the honourable carpet not to intimidate the minister while she was sitting there comfortably. Thank you, Honorable Calvert. <laughs> Honorable Minister. Thank you, Honorable Chair, and thank you to the members for their support, the bill, and those uh, parties that do not support the legislation. I must make it clear to you 
that we can't continue with the 1975 Act because it's unconstitutional. And Honorable Grunewald, I will take, I can, that's why I was shaking my head. If you take the 1975 Act to the Constitutional Court, they were declared unconstitutional. That's why I was shaking my head. Now, this is an effort now to replace... Honorable Minister, can you, can you take a seat, please? It's the, uh, Honorable Member, what is your point of order? Is the Honorable Minister willing to take a question? Honorable Minister, are you, are you willing to take a question? No, no, I will take him for coffee. Sell you for coffee. You know, for okay, our okay. Uh, so, did, you, uh, did you really think that I refused to the member, please, Honorable speech. Member, take your seat. The Minister is not prepared to take Honorable a question. Chairperson, I think we have to remind all of us, what are we talking about and what are we dealing about? 79% of this land is in private ownership. 14% of the land is in state-owned, national, provincial, and local government. They all sit on land, not just national. And 7% of the land is unaccounted for. That is the imbalances that we are trying to correct, honorable members of parliament. I think it's our duty to correct that imbalance so therefore, I say again that the independence and the fairness of our judiciary must never be questioned. I put my faith in the judiciary and the judiciary in this bill will be the final arbiter. We can't be supporting the judiciary when they rule in our favor and then now without the judiciary that they will be fair when it comes to expropriation. That is not correct. You know, if it was not such a serious debate, I couldn't believe what I was seeing, the new political alignment here. But I think the Freedom Front will win at the end because they walk straight. You had the uh, uh, DA being the spokesperson for the EFF. I never thought I was ever going to experience that something like this. Never, ever. So... Really, we mustn't play politics with this bill, Honorable Chair. I am done. I want to say, The land is ours. Thank you very much, Honorable Minister. Order, Honorable Members. That concludes. That concludes the debate on the bill. Amendments to the bill have been proposed in terms of Assembly Rule 291 and published on the order paper in the name of Ms. S. Graham. In terms of Rule 29, subsection 5b, the Speaker has decided to put the amendments for decision by the House. The amendments that have been proposed are to two clauses which are part of the bill. The amendments will be put together for decision. Once the House has taken a decision on them, the second reading of the bill will be put for decision. 
and I and I'll put the amendments as they appear on the other paper. Are there any objections? Thank you very much, House Chair. The ANC objects to the amendment as presented here. Thank you. Thank you. Honorable Chairman of the Opposition. Uh, House Chair, may we please call for a division? A division having been called, the bells will be rung for five minutes. Recording
coaching procedure will be used for this division. Firstly, in order to establish a quorum, I would request the table to confirm that we have the requisite number of members physically present in the chamber and on the visual platform to take this decision. Party whips will then be given an opportunity to confirm the number of their members present and indicate if they vote for or against the question. A member who wishes to abstain or vote against the party vote may do so by informing the chair. Order. Having confirmed that we have the requisite quorum, we will now proceed. The question before the House is that the amendments as they appear on the order paper in the name of Ms. S. Graham be agreed to. Voting will now commence. The doors to the chamber will, will, will remain locked and members are not allowed to enter the virtual platform until voting is concluded. Whips, could you confirm the number of your members present in the chamber and on the virtual platform and indicate if they vote for or against the question? The table will assist in its being. Are there party whips ready to record the votes of their members who are present? ANC? Thank you, Honorable Chair. On the virtual platform, ANC is 37. On the, in the House is 37. My apology for that. Um, in the House, ANC is 37. And the virtual platform, 161. That makes it 198 voting against the amendment. Thank you. DA? House Chair, in the House, we have uh, 18 members. Uh, online, we have 57 members voting in favor of the amendments to make this bill constitutional. Thank you. EFF? Thank you very much, House Chair. House Chair, in the House, we have 12. And then on virtual, we have 13. That gives us 25. And we're voting not in favor. Thank you. Thank you. IFP. Thank you, Honorable Chairperson. We are three in the House, six on virtual. We'll abstain. Thank you. Thank you. FF Plus. Thank you, House Chairperson. We are four members in the chamber, five on virtual. That's nine members in favor. ACDP. Thank you, House Chair. We are three in the House voting in favour. Thank you. One in the House, House Chair voting against. Yeah. ATM. ATM. Good. House Chair, one in the House, one on the virtual platform voting against. Thank you. NFP. NFP. AIC. 
Hope. P-A-C. Aljama. Honorable members, is there any member that wishes to abstain or vote differently to their party? Thank you. The voting session is now closed. And the results of the division will follow. Honorable members, the results of the division is as follows. Those who voted yes are 87. And those who voted against is 26. 226. Those who voted against is 226. And those who voted yes are 87. Therefore, the question is accordingly not agreed to. Chairperson? Chairperson? I think one will have to record the abstentions as well. Oh, thank you very much. Thanks for that correction, Honorable Chief Whip. The abstention is nine. Thank you, sir. Honorable Sutole, it's nine. Uh, the secretary, right here, right here.
Thank you, honorable members. As the amendments have been negatived, I now put a question. Are there any objections to the bill being read a second time? House Chair, please, could you note the objections of the DA? Noted. House Chair, please note the objection of the EFS. Noted. Chairperson, the objection of the IFP. And the objection of the AFF Plus. And the objection of the ACDP. Thank you. Thank you, honorable members. Any further objection? The secretary will read the bill a second time. Expropriation bill. The bill will be sent to the National Council of Provinces for concurrence. Honorable members, uh, before I announce the the conclusion of the House, uh, there's a member who has lost the supplementary to the ice. Uh, we have them here. That concludes the business for the day, and the house is adjourned. Long live the house, sir. Viva Michelle.